the greatest show on two wheels, all condensed into two hours-ish. It's MotoGP season review time on Bike Live. Let's go! Yes, this is episode 89 of Bike Live here on Motorsport 101 as we bring the curtain down on the 2018 MotoGP season. A spectacular season once again, even if it did end with the result that many of us had predicted at the start of the campaign. Mark Marquez reaching level 7 with yet another World Championship. But what a journey we had on the way to do it. We had the chaos of Argentina. We had the resurgence of Lorenzo as he finally... Uh, learned how to ride a Ducati just as the team decided he wasn't part of the future anymore. Uh, Valentino Rossi <laughs> entertaining once again, even if he never stood on the top step of a rostrum as Yamaha endured a season to forget. We saw the emergence of Alex Rins. We saw Kyle Crutchlow once again delight his status as one of Britain's elite MotoGP riders of all time. And so much more besides. We said goodbye to Scott Redding, to Bradley Smith, and of course to Danny Pedrosa from MotoGP. Uh, and we'll cover all of that over the course of the next uh, couple of hours. Joining me this week, uh, as always, to look back on uh, another brilliant MotoGP season is Andre Harrison. Dre, welcome. Hello. Pleasure to be here as always. Dramatic season that ended up being in the end, despite the fact that uh, only three things in life seem to be certain these days. Death, taxes, and Mark Marquez wins the championship. Uh, my bank and my bank manager definitely agreed. Um, but uh, yeah, a, great, a, a fantastic season, all told. And uh, so many ups and downs. And by the time we got to Europe, all hell had already broken loose in this championship as it is. Um, all of that and much, much more over the next probably two and a bit hours. Yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll try and keep a, a time limit on this. But if you listen to Not our, happening. our last two or three <laughs> podcasts, you'll know what we're like. Uh, we sometimes get it a little bit out of hand. Um, to try and uh, keep a lid on this and to try and keep us to time, um, joining us this week... Um, and this is in no way connected to the fact that KTM had their weekend from heaven uh, at the final weekend of the season in Valencia. Not whatsoever. Right, King joins us. King, welcome. Yeah, it's it's, it's great to be back on the show. Um, I'll try to be as unbiased as possible. Um... <laughs> Where, where's your fucking pom-poms? <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, I picked the wrong attire today because I just realized that I'm wearing a long sleeve orange shirt. Oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> it's delicious. It's perfect. Oh, yeah. I, I was made for Yeah, You're not hiding it well, King. You're not hiding it well. Um, but yeah, there's so <laughs> much to... There's already an audio medium. <laughs> there's so much to get through. Um, and yeah, we'll try and find a KTM angle on just about every race we go to if we can. Um, but before we get on to this MotoGP season... Uh, let's just run you through the places that you can find us. Starting on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash uh, Motorsport 101. On Twitter, we are at Motorsport underscore 101. Uh, do follow us on there if you haven't already. Our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Motorsport 101. And our website is Motorsport101.com. Uh, and it's a good time to mention that to you because we've had a number of written pieces go up there uh, over the last few yeah. days, including uh, a brilliant piece by uh, RJ O'Connell, uh, who uh, thanks Fernando Alonso, uh, as just about the entire world has done. Uh, in the last week or so for his services uh, to Formula 1. Uh, do check that out if you haven't already. It's a brilliant piece on our website, motorsport101.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, as key as uh, RJ O'Connell basically tells us how much his favourite driver meant to him over the last uh, 18 years uh, in Formula 1. 
Um, but also, Dre, another piece that's gone up there that I wanted to talk about briefly because it's actually relevant to this show. Um, a piece entitled Uh-oh. Dre versus Dre. Um, one argument that with Rebecca James, uh, a sporadic appearance on this show. Now it's an argument that Dre definitely will win. Um, but it's mm. it's a it's a piece that's very relevant to Bite Live because over the course of this show, we're going to debate Matt Marquez a lot and we're going to talk about Valentino Rossi, of course, because he's such a huge part of MotoGP. And uh, you've written a piece this week that discusses the merits of both of them in terms of their, their claim to be the greatest this sport has ever seen. Yeah, it was something that was that crossed my mind in my head about where would Marquez stack up on the all-time list now? Is there an argument you could make that he might be better than Valentino or and um, like that's the thing. Like like people that know me well know that I have a younger brother, um, brother Ryan, as we like to call him. You can follow him on Twitter at the brother Ryan if you want more insight into how uh, us Harrisons are dysfunctional. <laughs> but um, in that we we debate about sports all the goddamn time, um, from from football to, to to two wheels to four wheels, you name it. We've talked about it at some point, um, and we got into a bit of a bit of one about that one because brother Ryan is was is a big Valentino Rossi fan as much as he doesn't want to admit it these days um, and I've always leaned towards the Marquez side of things and I was and inspired by that I split my personality into two separate entities and I was able to debate myself on the merits of Rossi versus Marquez um, I've not done one of those pieces for a good two and a half years now and uh, I thought this was a good time to dust off my, my, my Dre 1 and Dre 2 and uh talk about the uh, the relative merits of the pair of them the ups and downs the the black marks against their names and so on and so forth it's a fun time for all the family um so yeah if you haven't already check it out there um and let me know what you think um i, I really enjoyed writing that one to be fair um and i uh, hope you guys enjoyed it as much as i did hmm. yeah do check that out now as i mentioned modersport101.com uh, if you like all of that so much that you'd like to back us financially uh, back us on patreon patreon.com forward slash modersport101 Back us at the $5 tier, you earn yourself early access to both of our weekly shows. Uh, episode 171's early access is available right now to those who are listening in live. Uh, and if you are listening live, that means you're back to the $10 tier, which means you can join our Discord server and listen to these podcasts as they are recorded. As I mentioned, Dre, episode 171 mm-hmm. uh, recorded earlier this week. Looking back on the final Grand Prix of the 2018 Formula 1 season as Lewis Hamilton took the entire Formula One uh, grid to task and then took his mm-hmm. top off to celebrate. Yeah, the, the, uh, what better way to celebrate? Also, shout out to one of our Discord listeners in there right now. Jason, happy birthday, 58 and, and counting. Um, <laughs> I'm joking, Jason. Happy, happy birthday today. Happy Cupid's today, my friend. Um, this week. Indeed. But uh, yeah, episode 171 will be live by the time this goes out. And uh, yeah, it is, in, it is heavily entitled Bad Boys for Life in honor of it being the Will Smith Invitational. Um, essentially, uh, we talk about his big influence on the race weekend because Will Smith was literally everywhere. Lewis Hamilton taking the rest of the grid behind the barn and shooting it. Um, and us saying goodbye to uh, a very different looking grid next year. Um, we have Daniel Ricciardo's final race at Red Bull, of course, Fernando Alonso and his final race for now in Formula One 
um, with a with triple tandem donuts on the home table, which is a beautiful thing to see. There's uh, 11 world championships between the three of them there, um, and the last time, at least for now, they'll be racing together. Um, all of that in a pretty heaped and actually pretty darn good Abu Dhabi Grand Prix, all things considered, as well as all of the big the big news as well, including a, again all the the latest driver stuffles that you know we kind of already knew but got confirmed, like Robert Kubica at Williams, Alex Albon getting confirmed at Toro Rosso. Um, more in IndyCar, like Santino Ferrucci confirmed back at Dale Coyne, and a whole bunch of other news as well. So all of that, and, you know, RJ's terrible Will Smith-related puns, you know, which, which to be honest, is worth the price of admission alone, quite frankly. Mm. Um, so all of that, and much more, in episode 171 of Motorsport 101, Bad Boys for Life, available now. Good podcasts are available. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, the Formula 1 season review will be coming uh, very, very soon, between now and Christmas, so do keep an eye out. Uh, for that yeah. now though we're going to review the MotoGP season um which started as always in the uh, in the desert in qatar under the lights um back in march and dre what a start to the season we had um it was at this point that it kind of emerged i suppose how yamaha were kind of behind the eight ball even though joan zarco put it on pole position um for the opening race um of the season uh he much like valentino rossi was unable to keep the dominant two of 2017 in check and 2018 ending much like 2017 started with another Davizioso versus Marquez classic. Yes, uh, Dovi, Dovi versus Marquez free judgment day. Um, yeah, the uh, third chapter in their trilogy um, was was still pretty darn solid as well. Again, going down to the final quarter, and Marquez once again throwing their heavy brake job um, <laughs> into the final corner, and for the third time, it not working out. Bobby getting him back on the switchback to win. But uh, yeah, it, it was a great sign for the season going forward, given that we had about eight bikes in the leading group for the first half of it. Um, you know, Johan Zarco was on pole, but sadly faded. Um, on his uh, aggressive tire strategy. But uh, yeah, by the time we got to the end, it really was Marquez versus Dovi at it again. And Dovi essentially winning by a nose, shall, shall we say, on that one. But uh, another Marquez versus Dovi classic, another case of warm handshakes all round the back. And uh, yes, more inevitable social media content about this was the third time that Marquez had lost a head-to-head to Dovi. Remember that, it becomes important later. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, AJ on the Discord, uh, a far better trilogy fight than Liddell Ortiz 3. Yeah. Oh, by, a, by, a, by a tad. Uh, side note, mm. one of my best friends is a huge UFC fan, and boy, would you love to know what he thought of that fight last weekend. Uh, he hated <laughs> it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, coming back to MotoGP and the Dovi Marquez battle uh, in Qatar, Dre, uh, 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 King, as Dre rightly said, this was the third time we'd seen... Mark Marquez go up against Andrea Vizioso in a last corner head-to-head and lose uh, and come out in second place. And after the way his 2017 finished, losing the title to Mark Marquez, this was just the start Dobby needed. Yeah, this is definitely the start you need to you know, to get you build up confidence. Not not necessarily momentum because it's only one it's only one race, it's only one win. Anything can happen in the next couple races, and things didn't turn out diff- things didn't turn out the same in the next couple races. But this is the boost of confidence that he could go head-to-head with Mark Marquez and come out on top. Especially given what I think many people were saying going into this 2018 season, Dre. We, we almost forget it now, given how long ago it was. But one of the big questions coming into this 2018 season was, can Davizioso back up what he did in 2017? 
because that was mm. the first time we'd seen Andrea Vizioso really ride at that level, at a world-class, elite, best-in-the-world level. Of course, we'd seen him win junior class championships, but in MotoGP, in the premier class, he'd only um, won uh, two premier class races going into 2017 um, before that sensational season where he won six and took Mark Marquez to the wire. Um, right. So we were uncertain whether that was just one great Vizioso season in the right conditions with quirky tyre strategies and, and such like. But right from the start, Vizioso was proving to us all that this wasn't just a flash-in-the-pan one-off great season from Dovi, but this was a new Dovi. It was a new Dovi. It, it was Dovi the legitimate alien, the flash-in-the-pan. And uh, yeah, he cemented that by basically just picking up where, where Ducati left off last year. Um, there was still, I think, an element of surprise last year that Dovi was the contender that he was, and he had taken Marquez um, longer into the title fight than anybody really had done before, you know, when Marquez has been a, a prime contender. And yeah, Dovi went straight in, you know, and that Ducati looked like a, looked like a mean weapon once again, super fast in a straight line, and was able to just, again, just out outmaneuver Marquez in the clutch yet again and it seemed to be that was a, leg a legitimate you know feather in the cap that Dovi had over Marquez he could beat him head to head and yeah it wasn't the fluke Dovi really was a, a was you know a, a round and now one of the two or three best riders in the world he hmm. was Davizioso beating Mark Marquez to the victory uh, in Qatar Valentino Rossi taking third place um which was kind of setting the tone for the season really in that third was by and large the best Yamaha could really hope for on most weekends uh, with Ducati and Honda clearly having the legs on them. Uh, Cal Crutchlow taking fourth in the only ways ahead of Danilo Petrucci and Maverick Vinales, who was also setting the tone for his season to come uh, by recovering from a pretty disastrous opening lap to finish in sixth place with some good late race pace. Round two, though, took us to Termas Rio Hondo in Argentina. And to be quite honest, we could devote the entire two hours just to this weekend. Um, mm -hmm. what happened there. Um, I do I do remember our our review of this race back in in April and I remember we spoke for an hour on that podcast that week before we even mentioned the race winner uh, Cal Crutchlow um, because of what else happened um, let, let's start in qualifying and one of the laps of the year um, from Jack Miller riding with a significant handicap given that he had nuts the size of grapefruits between his legs um, setting pole <laughs> position um, with slick tyres on what was still a pretty damp racetrack. Um, damp? Damp, damp, putting it mildly. It was wet with like a, a very small dry line that Jack Miller somehow managed to find to take pole position ahead of Mark Marquez. Uh, but King, the circumstances that followed, the, the scenes on the grid were quite remarkable with, with everybody funneling off the grid before the race started because they had the wrong tyres on and they wanted to start uh, on slick tyres rather than wet. Jack Miller, was the, the pole man, was the one rider who decided he was already going to start on slicks and was on all the grid on his own. And I still can't believe the scenes we saw, uh, King, back in Argentina, where race direction and the teams were falling over themselves to try and come up with a solution that did not punish Jack Miller for making the right call. And I never thought we'd ever see a MotoGP race start with Jack Miller on pole position and about 20 grid slots immediately behind him left vacant before the rest of the field started behind him. Yeah, it was it was just sheer chaos. I I think that like they realized that obviously the regulations need to be changed to avoid this in the future. But there was no there was no clear solution in the moment, and it was pretty much every every man for himself uh, in the pit lane at the at the exit. It was we we saw uh, team bosses stood at the front of the grid. 
Um, Jack Miller sat on his own on the grid, basically saying, hey, I'm ready to go here. Can we start this race? I've made the right decision to start on slicks. Um, and <laughs> as I mentioned, Dre, they, they took the solution to start the race with Jack Miller on pole and essentially, what, four or five rows of the grid vacant. So he, he had about a 100-meter yeah. head start on them. But that's not, even where the chaos, that's not even where the chaos ends. And I'm not even talking about the race having started yet because this moment is really what kind of set the trigger for everything that followed afterwards. Marc Marquez pulls up onto the grid to start the race and his bike stops. And, and, and the scenes of Marc Marquez basically riding the wrong way down the pit straight, trying to bump start his bike to get back in position again. Not only was it sheer chaos, but it also set the scene for what would follow, which was again all-out chaos. Oh Jesus! Like if it was, if it was, if you like the the clearly the dam of crazy shit in bike racing that all bust wide open, and then Mark Marquez of all people, like Mister Creativity himself, Mark Marquez, um, his bike stalls on the grid. He's going backwards trying to move it into position. The start's delayed. It is utter chaos. And the uh, and then Marcus had to had to suffer a ride through penalty essentially, um, and yeah, all hell had broken loose by this point. And uh, there's still like only the third craziest thing that happened in that Grand Prix. <laughs> it is because Mark Marquez essentially bumps his bump starts his bike again and pulls it back into position, despite Stewart stewards and marshals telling him to get off the grid and get into the pit lane, which is what you're meant to do uh, when yep. your bike stops running on the grid because they don't want to obviously risk the, uh, a race starting with um, essentially the, the biking version of what we saw in F2 last weekend in Abu Dhabi. That's the kind of situation they're trying to avoid yeah. with this rule. Mark Marquez started anyway from what was essentially P2 on the grid, even though he was several meet, several hundred metres behind the pole man. And <laughs> he serves his ride through penalty. And how do we describe King, Mark Marquez's race from there on in? Um, because he, of course, he... Very nearly rode Alicia Spargaro off the road, trying to get his way back through the field. He had to give the position back to him before overtaking him again. Then the collision heard around the world with Valentino Rossi, um, where Rossi was knocked off at the hairpin while they were battling over fifth at the end of the race. Obviously, the rivalry that those two have with each other, that initially set MotoGP Twitter into absolute meltdown. Um Cam describes it in the chat as a flood of red mist. Was that King? Was that how you described it for Mark Because it did uh, look the way he was riding as if his head had gone. I think it's it's less red mist, more of like he. It looked like he thought he was trying to win this race on foot. That he had to try to win by any means necessary. Something yeah, like it that. Did. It, it did. It looked like Mark Marquez was just just trying everything. It almost looked like he. Uh, was just basically doing his own race and everyone else basically had to just get out of his way or risk an accident because he... he... And I think what also kind of exaggerates the old rate, and this is probably one of the big takeaways from the hours of the time weekend now that everything has calmed down, was just how much faster than everyone else Mark Marquez was. Yeah, like, that was arguably the most terrifying part was that compared to most of the runners in the field and... There was a big leading group of this race going on at the same time between Rins, Miller, Crutchlow, and Zarco. Mark Marquez was behind them going a second a lap quicker. Um, like, Marquez was... It was like Back to the Future. You see the flame-related entrails off the back of the bike coming through. It was... 
it was relentless. It was like Ghost Rider was out there in Argentina. It was ridiculous. And his pace was absolutely terrifying. And it was a race that, hey, if he started from the pit lane, he could very well have oh, yeah. won. I think he would have won. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I remember tweeting at the time when he served his right to penalty, I thought to myself, can he still win this from here? Like the pace he's got, because he was he he was already when he served the penalty, he'd already taken the lead from Jack Miller and was was clearing off into the distance. Um, mm. When he served his penalty, I had sort of visions of Valentino Rossi's famous win in Phillip Island when he had the fifteen uh, the ten second penalty, um, and he still won the race um, despite the time penalty. He just got more than ten seconds up the road and won it anyway. And I kind of had mm. visions of Mark Marquez doing a very similar thing, coming through from the back of the field to win the race. Of course, the collision with Valentino Rossi. Uh, just as, as I mentioned, it set all of MotoGP social media into absolute meltdown. We saw Marquez going over to the Yamaha box to try and apologize and sw- swiftly getting told to go forth and multiply by, by Uchio. Uh, Sulici, yep. um, Dante <laughs> Rossi's right-hand man, and Lynn Jarvis were basically saying, you're not welcome here. Um, and it was, I mean, the, the rivalry between those two, I'd, I'd, I would never go as far as to say, Dre, that it had recovered from Sepang 2015 because I don't think it ever will. Um, yeah, as Cam says, of all the people to hit, he hit Valentino Rossi. Uh, yeah, that, I think that's what we were all thinking. It was like, of all the people you had to knock off, Mark, it was him. Um, because, yeah. because it just, yeah, no, right? it just it just reignited that rivalry. And I still think to this day, uh, we're still almost trying to sort of pick up the pieces from that. I mean, we still had those those famous scenes, I think it was at Mizano, where Mark tried to offer a handshake to Valentino Rossi, who just sort of chuckled and laughed at him and sort of shook his head and said no i'm not shaking your hand yeah. um yeah that i don't think we ever thought that rivalry would ever truly recover from sepang but that was the moment that just rubber stamped it these two will never be on the same page again no and like as as cam points out in this score like all the people you had to hit it's like alicia spagaro understood why <laughs> i didn't agree with it but at least he was like Okay, I get why he did it because he was so much faster. Not to mention he was probably caught in a bigger accident, potential accident with Danilo Petrucci that wasn't even televised, as he put on his Instagram page of that weekend. But Trey, like, I have the numbers up on how much faster Mark Marquez was than the rest of the field. Go so, on. Mark Marquez's fastest lap was uh, about four, yeah, four tenths faster than next best rider. And if you yeah, average so. everyone's ten fastest laps together. Mark Marquez was on average almost nine and a nine and a half tenths faster than the rest of the field. <laughs> That's a joke. Yeah, That's a for the pit lane. He would have won that race. I'm convinced yeah. of it. He would have done. Yeah. Um, it was. It was, it was incredible. I mean, laps in this was a race that started in in dampish conditions, as as, as you'll probably imagine, for the fact that half the field, well, ninety nine percent of the field, except for Jack Miller, were going to start on wets before they uh, changed their minds on the grid and wanted slicks. Um, Mm. Jack Miller led early on he wouldn't ultimately be in the fight for the win uh, in the end Uh, as Dre mentioned it was it was largely Cal Crutchlow Jean Zarco and Alex Rins um, who were disputing the the battle at the front and and, and Cal Crutchlow won it um, to take the world championship lead at this early stage of the season remarkably um, to add to his fourth in the opening round in Qatar and his season ended in unfortunate circumstances, Dre, with his crash in, in Phillip mm. Island. And, and I think we're finally now, with the, the full details of that, getting a, an idea of just how badly injured he was in Australia. Um, yeah, that was given nasty. That, you know, we're, we're hearing that you know, for a quote-unquote normal person, um, the recovery, anticipated recovery time for the injury Cal suffered in Phillip Island is one whole year. 
um, from it. And Cal Crutchlow is probably going to be back riding in the Sepang test at the start of February. Um, which, yeah. which, again, just to show, goes to show you what motorcycle racers put themselves through uh, to recover from injuries. But Philip, uh, Argentina was obviously the high point of the season for Cal. But even when you put that to one side and just look at his general body of work for the season, a tremendous season that Cal Crutchlow had. He had the second place in Mategi, which was his final race before the injury, third in Mazzano, a number of fourth places as well. He was legitimately the second best Honda rider behind Mark Marquez, clearly faster than Danny Pedrosa, clearly faster than uh, the rookies who own Hondas, Morbidelli, Nakagami, and Luti. Um, mm. I mean, you could potentially argue his 2016 season where, of course, he took the two wins and Bruno um, and Philip Island, but could you make a case that this was Cal Crutchlow's best season as a MotoGP rider? Um, that's a case you could make. Um, Mr. Don't Doubt Me! Yeah. After Argent's... Uh, after Argent. Um, and look, Let's not forget, after that round, he was leading the championship. Um, he, he was leading the championship going into the circuit of the Americas. Um, and I, I don't think it was until Jaref where he ended up dropping off the top spot after being in it from pole in that round, which we'll get to in a minute. But yeah, Crutchlow, his body of work was really solid. He was consistently in the top five or six all year long and was in many a leading group for race victories on occasion as well. And as well as the win, had two other podiums, as mentioned, that Mategi and that Misano as well, where he finished third in, in that one as well. So, for like, as a complete year, this probably was the most overall solid that Crutchlow has been all year. He still had a couple of silly crashes that he still needs to iron out of his game. And, of course, the injury at the end of the year didn't help. Um, it ended up dropping in behind Johan Zarco in the Independent Championship in the end. But a very solid overall season from Cal Crutchlow and proof that he might be the only other man in, on the planet right now that can make the Honda work as a motorcycle. Mm, absolutely. And he, he finished the season seventh overall in the points, and that was having missed the final three races of the season. He lost the top independent rider to Johan Zarco um, and obviously was overhauled by Alex Rins as well in those final three races when Rins... Uh, scored some 51 points um, from those final three races, which took him way past mm. Cal Crutchlow in the championship. But at the point where Cal Crutchlow got that injury, he was genuinely within shooting distance of pipping Maverick Vinales for fourth overall um, yeah. at that point. Maverick then went on to win the Australian Grand Prix that Cal missed, um, which means that in the end, Cal finished some 45 points behind Vinales. But it was much closer than that before Cal got injured um, because, of course, he just finished second uh, in Japan. Uh, mm. As Joey mentioned, he led the championship out of Argentina on the way to the Grand Prix of the Americas in Texas. And uh, and King, it's always difficult. If you say you buy a ticket to go to a motorsport event, you don't always know what you're going to get. But if you're a MotoGP <laughs> fan and you buy a ticket to a race in America, you pretty much know you're going to see a Mar Marquez victory. Yes, I think you go in anticipating Marquez is going to win. Uh it's it's mainly seeing how the story plays out. Yeah, it's how we go. Spoiler to alert! There. Spoiler alert! He did win. Just yeah. just just to clarify. <laughs> you know, well, how many is that in a row now for him, Dre? In, in America, was that at least ten? He's won in a row. I I want to say it's ten races in the United States yeah. of America. Hasn't um, lost I a think race. It's... Hasn't lost a race in America since the 2010 Indianapolis 125cc Grand Prix. <laughs> Um, which um, which was the season he won the 125 title. He's won every single race on American soil since then um, across his two, motor, two seasons and his, what, uh, six now MotoGP seasons. Uh, mm. At one point, of course, there were three American races 
in a MotoGP calendar. For Mark Marquez's first season, for instance, there were races in Indianapolis, uh, Texas, and also, of course, at Laguna Seca before that fell off the calendar. Um, Mark mm. Marquez, for the first time ever in America, didn't start on pole position, or for the first time in Austin anyway, because he got in Maverick Vinales' way in qualifying, um, which landed him a three-place grip penalty, but that didn't stop him taking the victory um, in the end, Dre. And um, Andre Vizioso would lead the championship out of America into Europe um, by virtue of his uh, fifth place in America. He's uh, He was the only rider to have finished in the top six um, along with Maverick at every single round. Maverick took second behind Marc Marquez. But this is one of the great things with Marc Marquez, isn't it? That we uh, have become accustomed to now in MotoGP. Every rider and every driver in motorsport, Dre, has their favourite circuits, has their circuits mm. that they go better at than everywhere else. But with Marc Marquez, his favourite circuits are genuine banker rounds where he is a near guarantee to win. Yeah, more or less. Like, Marquez now has two, maybe three rounds now where he is literally invincible. Like, the Saxon Ring, Kota, and probably Aragon now as well, even though he had to he had to earn that one. Um, and, and that was a hard-fought one. But, like, he now has two or three banker rounds where he's virtually guaranteed to win, which is terrifying. Um, that's, like, you don't normally get that in this guy literally has bank arounds where he can go into a track and as long as he doesn't do anything stupid he will win it and that's exactly what marquez has done six years running in moto gp's top flight winning at the circuit of the americas and again going back to his moto two days is that's the streak at the saxon ring is even longer than that so yeah by, by any counts it is a bank around for marquez and that is probably a big reason why he has these five top flight world titles yeah, I make it 12 in a row he's won in America now. I mean, he's won six in a row in Cota, as Jason tells us on the on the chat. Um, but he's got uh, a Laguna Seca win um, as well to add to that, um, plus, a, plus several wins at Indianapolis as well across Moto2 uh, and MotoGP before that fell off the calendar. He is unstoppable um, on American soil. Um, and, and what we noticed when we got to Europe, Dre, is that it wasn't just his bank arounds that the Mark Marquez were winning at. He would win the next two races at, at Jerez um, and Le Mans. And of course, we'll, we'll come on to the circumstances of, of what else happened in that race, particularly what happened behind and around Mark Marquez shortly. But it was even at this early stage where Mark Marquez was starting to take control of the championship. And whilst obviously that has something to do with what Andre Vizioso was doing um, in those races, crashing out of both, Mark Marquez was actually winning races at circuits that historically had been also quite weak to him. Um, Jerez, he'd only won once around there, and that was in his season where he won everything in the first half of the season, 2014. Um, and Le Mans had been historically a Yamaha stronghold, but Marc Marquez was winning there too. Yeah, like as he mentioned, only one career victory in, in MotoGP. It, it had been a, a Lorenzo bank around for, for many, many years. He had that near freakish dominant win a couple of years back as well, but Marquez has never gone particularly well at Jerez. And then, of course, he rides a flawless race in there, have to go win there too. And then everyone was sitting back at that race going, uh-oh. And, yeah, he, he basically got to the front of the pack. There was a lot of Ducatis and his teammate Pedrosa around him. He got to the front of the queue, um, he overtook Lorenzo to do it at the final corner, something that everybody else seemed to be struggling with. You know, the great wall of Jorge had suddenly showed up for the year. Um, he got to the front, got a couple of seconds, forced the hand of everybody else around him to go, well, like, wait, wait, guys, he's getting away. Um, and 
that led to, well, one of the highlights of the year, unfortunately. As I like to call it, Danny Pedrosa playing leapfrog with himself. Hmm. Um, it, it wasn't great. Yeah, it was. It was, I mean, King, that, that moment at Hareth, it is one of the standout moments of the season um, that occurred in the wake of Mark Marquez, um, who had already sort of checked out at that point. And it was Andrei Vizioso's urge and willingness to try and chase after Mark Marquez that led to the accident. Um, where we tried to overtake Jorge Lorenzo into the dry sack hairpin, the uh, famous uh, Villeneuve-Schumacher hairpin um, from 1997. <laughs> he tries to overtake Jorge Lorenzo. They almost come together. Then Danny Pedroza ends up in the wrong place at the wrong time, which is just such an in- so so sort of representative of Danny Pedroza's MotoGP career. Um, mm. He's always in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, but King... That was one of the moments where Jorge Lorenzo really started to look like a front-running contender again uh, on a Ducati. And it just seems to be that when Jorge Lorenzo is a front-running contender on the Ducati, he only kind of, he solves one problem, but he also creates another in that he complicates life for Dovizioso. And he did that here. Yeah, and it, it, I don't know if it, if if it's a part of Jorge's personality, but that seems to just be like a consistent thing thing for him and it was already kind of starting to come up that Jorge probably wouldn't be mm. uh re-signing at, at Ducati. He was already, you know, looking at other options. So that it seemed weird that now would be the time for Jorge to click with the Ducati. Yeah, Jorge Lorenzo had not finished in the top ten yet uh, at this stage of the twenty eighteen season. He'd um failed to finish in Qatar for the only race of the season, then finished fifteenth in Argentina. 15th in Argentina, and that wasn't with a crash. That was yeah. legitimately where he was in the race. Um, mm-hmm. He was then 11th in, in Texas for the, sec- the third race of the season, and, of course, the crash in Spain. Um, yeah, it was at this point of the season, as King mentioned, it was at this point that we were talking about Jorge Lorenzo leaving Ducati, but it was at this stage we thought he was going to the Patronas Yamaha squad um, that was being set up for this season. Uh, boy, how that story would take a turn. Um, mm. but, uh, but, yeah, he, Davizioso and Pedroza wiped out in one fell swoop. Uh, as Joan Zarco came through to take second place, uh, which left him as the nearest contender to Mark in the championship. Um, I think he was about about 10 points behind Mark Marquez at this stage of the season, with Zarco having taken two seconds uh, in the first four races, which leads us to another of the highlights of the season, Dre. Now, the low light would come on the Sunday when he'd crash out of the uh, of the leading group, but I still remember it. It's still one of my abiding images, one of my abiding sounds of 2018 is Joan Zarco taking pole position on home soil oh, yes. and the serenading he got from his home fans. The chance of Zarco still ringing through my ears. Oh, that was that was the best quarterfying session of 2018. It was, it was, it... Could Marquez topple Zarco on home turf? Like, Zarco is one of those mythical beings where he, the old Nigel Mansell theory does actually apply to him, where he's half a second faster on home soil. It just works with him. And, like, the roar that came out of 100,000 screaming Frenchmen when Zarco goes to the top um, in, the middle of, in, in the middle of that session at the end now, about, about two minutes to go, um, was just meteoric. I've never heard anything like it in GP where... You can hear just the bellows of the French fans going absolutely potty that Zarco had stuck it on pole position. And there was a big gasp of breath as well in Sector 3 when Marquez had all... He looked like Marquez was good and beaten, but then he finds a tenth of a half in, in Sector 3 and everyone's like, well, wait just a goddamn minute. And it's like, how's he done that? 
<laughs> like I, I distinctly remember Hewitt on commentary going, well, the, oh, it's gone, the lap's gone now, and then all of a sudden he finds a tenth and a half, and it's like, well, shit, yeah. <laughs> hang on. And it, it was an incredible qualifying session, but again, that one that one reaction of Zarko on pole position was uh, euphoric, to say the least. It was. Yeah, it was to awesome. me, it... it, it... Yeah, to me, it felt like it capped off like a big week for Zarko because earlier that week, uh, they had announced that the Super Prestigio, uh, you know, the the end of the year Supermoto kind of like mm. flat track event, would not be in Spain that year. It'd be in Paris and centered around Johan Zarko. Yeah, and Zarko's event now. He's made it. <laughs> yeah, and that event is is coming up quite soon actually in in, in the motorsport calendar. Um, but yeah, Zarko would follow his his probably his highlight of the year with his his low light of the year, the crash out of. What probably would have been second place, if we're being honest with ourselves, um, in that Le Mans race. I don't think he would have had the pace to beat Marc Marquez head-to-head uh, that day, although he might have run him close. Um, but Marc Marquez seemed to have the legs on him. I think it was his attempts to give chase that saw Zarco crash um, out of yeah. that uh, French Grand Prix. Um, but we'd already seen Andre de Vizioso crash out uh, of that Grand Prix. And Marc Marquez Dre won the championship by a comfortable margin in the end. So I don't think we can necessarily say there was one key moment that saw... Mark win the championship and Dobby lose it. Um, mm. But it was a series of races. What The, the incident we've already discussed at Jerez, the crash out of the lead at Le Mans. Yes, he finished second in Magella, but then there'll be another crash out of a podium position in Catalonia. It was that stretch of European races where Dobby crashed out of three of the four races that really saw him fall behind in the championship. And, and that, was, that was damage that he would never ultimately repair. Yeah, it's a shame because Dovi had gotten this reputation as being a guy who didn't make very many mistakes, was a consistent, solid guy, you know, who would get the maximum out of the Ducati and probably challenge for wins on most circuits. All of a sudden, you know, he he, he takes, you know, second place of the race um, at Le Mans, going over the Dunlop Bridge, rush of blood to the head, loses the front a corner later. Um, because you know, turn turn five is tricky. It's it's downhill. It's it's your trail break into a degree because it's not dead straight, um, and it's a long, wide, sweeping corner. It's very, very easy to tuck, to tuck the front into turn five, and that's exactly what Dovi did. He tucked it, lost control, um, down he went, and uh, yeah, like I think Dovi literally just said it. He we wasn't concentrating after making the pass, and next thing you know, down he went, um, and yeah, like it, it wasn't. The death sentence for his title campaign just yet was still a little bit too early for that. But you did kind of get the overarching feeling that now Dovi had left himself a lot to do in order to, to, to beat Marquez, who, with that one, winning at Le Mans was his third win in a row. Hmm, his third win in a row. Um, Magello would be a, probably one of the rare low moments for Mark Marquez. We've already discussed the other um, in Argentina mm. where um, he kind of lost his head. Um, Mugello has probably become the weak circuit for Honda on the calendar now. Um, mm. With the, the sort of the nature of that circuit, um, it just doesn't seem to suit the Honda at all. Um, Mark Marquez qualified poorly by his standards. I think he qualified sixth on the grid for that race and then mm. um, crashed trying to keep up with uh, with the leaders in that, in that Italian Grand Prix. Um, as you've already mentioned, King, it was around this stage that Jorge Lorenzo's fate was almost already sealed at Ducati. He was going to be leaving the team. They'd announced Daniel Petrucci was going to sign for that team in, in 2019. He was going to be riding alongside Vizioso at the factory team. And with a great sense of timing, Jorge Lorenzo turns up at Ducati's home race and wins at a canter. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and and it, was, it was at this moment where 
they'd they'd made a change to the bike. They'd put a new fuel tank on the bike, which seemingly allowed Jorge Lorenzo to ride the bike how he wanted it to be, not only to be able to ride in comfort, but ride um, at full comfort for the entire race rather than feeling fatigued later on. Um, but these these victories that we saw from Lorenzo, because he'd followed this up with another win in Catalonia uh, a week later, uh, does this particularly reflect on Ducati and the decision they made? I mean, I still think at the time Ducati made their decision, they made their decision pre-Magello, uh, which yeah. stage Jorge Lorenzo had, uh, let me count it, 10, he had 17 points on the board from the first five races. Surely King, even even if they'd known what, I mean, if they'd known what was to come, they might have made a different decision. But at the point Ducati made their decision to cut Jorge Lorenzo from their team and back Dovi for the future, surely that was the only decision they could have made. Yeah, it was the only decision that they could have made. It felt, it didn't feel entirely tied to to Jorge's performance. That, you know, relations with the team also weren't that well. So I don't think that would have he- mended, you know, the wounds if he just started winning all of a sudden. Because he won those two races um, in Mugello and uh, Catalonia. But as I mentioned earlier, Andre, uh, and this kind of follows on from what we saw at the end of 2017, Mm. Lorenzo's role at Ducati, of course, he'd been brought into that team to to win the World Championship, and in the end, it was Dovi that very nearly beat him to it. Um, mm. But it, it seemed that Dovi had claimed the high ground within that team, and Jorge Lorenzo would be either way off the pace on the other bike, or when he was very well and truly on the pace, he was only complicating Dovi's championship challenge, and therefore, it was kind of counterproductive to Ducati when Lorenzo was competitive. Yeah, it was weird. You could date that back probably to Misano last year when in a race that was pouring it down with rain, Lorenzo took the whole shot, had multiple seconds in hand and crashed from the lead. Um, that was remember the mapping eight stories of uh, Sepang and Valencia. Of course. And then, then you had the mapping eight stories about team orders and Lorenzo refusing to listen to team orders on two separate occasions at the end of the season. Um, so that had already strained relations within the team that Lorenzo wasn't willing to play the title game to help Dovi win the title, Loren- even though Lorenzo was mathematically ineligible. Um, he he, uh, he, hon- like, he only really, quote-unquote, let Dovi win in Sepang because he made a mistake on the final corner and essentially let Dovi through by accident, not on purpose. Um, so the relations are already strained and as as we've seen in MotoGP over the years silly seasons get sorted out earlier and earlier these days but like we hadn't even turned the wheel in 2019 yet and Mark Marquez Valentino Rossi and Maverick Vinales had all been confirmed to be on the grid for via two-year extensions across the board by Magello we'd already known Danny Pedrosa was going to be leaving Repsol Honda at the end of the season. And by that point, we knew that Danilo Petrucci had a clause in his contract where Ducati, if they wanted to sign him, had to sign him before Magello, And they did in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we already, already already seen a lot of the 2019 grid taking shape. And by the time Ducati had to make a decision on Petrucci, they could, I'm, I'm 99% sure they could not keep in Lorenzo on that team with level of performance to that point in time, which is ironic because then after that, Lorenzo would go on to literally win two rounds back to back and be basically be a different rider until until Silverstone. Mm. Um, it's funny how these things turn out. It is, yeah. Hindsight being a wonderful thing, but I, I, yeah, I still think even now, Ducati made the right call. Um, Agreed to, to back Davizioso, especially not knowing what we know now that they have 
uh, Pekka Banyaya in their back pocket, just waiting for him uh, to be factory ready, which some might argue he already is. He's only been testing for two uh, for four days on that mm. Pramac Ducati. Mm. Um, he's been very, very quick in the last week or so. Um, King, we've, we've already discussed whether it was good for Ducati, ultimately, that, that Jorge Lorenzo was as quick as he was um, come uh, Mugello, come Catalunya. Um, but there's no question, given how Marc Marquez was already dominating at this stage of the season, that a resurgent Jorge Lorenzo at this stage of the MotoGP season was certainly good for the sport. Yes, because it, it's always good for the sport when you have more drive, like more riders in contention for race wins. It makes it always exciting. It makes it more likely that races are going to go down to the wire. And in MotoGP, they often do. They often do. And uh, Jorge Lorenzo, whether he necessarily makes himself popular by doing so, he is one of the sport's great characters, Dre. Um, he's never shy uh, of, of an opinion. He's never short on self-confidence, um, nope. which obviously a lot of the time people will, will mistake for arrogance. Um, and sometimes it is arrogance on Hogan Lorenzo's part, if we're being truly honest. It but um, he is a huge character. He's a character that the MotoGP is better off for having. Um, and in many ways, this is not only relevant to what we've seen in 2018, but it's relevant for next season. What we can never accuse Jorge Lorenzo of is not backing himself and backing his own talent to, to ultimately shine through. And, and it was at this point in Mugello and, and Catalonia that the, the talent of Jorge Lorenzo finally did shine through at a point then that we were questioning whether he would ever win on a Ducati, whether, we, whether he was just truly not the right rider for that motorcycle. Um, but he ultimately came through with victories um, in Catalonia and Mugello. We'll come on to his third win um, shortly. Um, but there's no question that not only is a, is a Jorge Lorenzo a, a fully firing, fully on form Jorge Lorenzo good for the sport, but um, he's a rider and a personality that you kind of have to respect, really, because, as I mentioned, he always backs himself, and quite often he ends up being right. He is a guy that, like, Lorenzo is very much in the sense that, you know, he bets against himself more than any rider I've seen in GP in recent years. He he's a guy that his very performance is often based on confidence in himself and in the bike he's riding. If he doesn't have it, he tends to struggle. And, you know, we saw both sides of that equation with Lorenzo as the year would go on. But Lorenzo never stopped believing that he that, you know, that he couldn't do it eventually. And he, he proved that by, you know, by year 1.5 of his time at Ducati, he had gotten there. He was, he was a different rider and he looked like a guy that, you know, if he'd... If he'd gotten off to a better start, would probably have won. You know, been a, at least been a title contender with Marquez. The potential was certainly there because when Lorenzo was on it, he was unbeatable. Um, and, and that happened in all three of his victories. You know, he had to earn Austria a little bit more, but the two wins he did take at Mugello and Catalunya beforehand were flawless victories. Lights to flag, and it was a typical Lorenzo style of metronomic pace where he's just setting lap times within a tenth of each other every single time and finding that nearly invincible rhythm where you just can't beat him um that's what lorenzo did to perfection and nobody had an answer for him which made the whole he's leaving jacati thing a trifle awkward for about yeah, a week it did it did as uh, as lorenzo would, would start to draw level with davizioso in the championship with his with his back-to-back wins and of course the winning Catalonia came at the time when Davizioso was was crashing out of a race for the third time in four. Um, Valentino Rossi was actually emerging as the nearest championship challenger um, to Mark Marquez at this stage, having had three consecutive podiums 
third at Le Mans, third from pole position. And that was another of the, the highlights of the season. Another hometown pole position to go with Zarco's at Le Mans. Rossi taking pole at Mugello um, was another standout moment. And then third in Catalonia behind the quite comfortable one and two of Lorenzo and Marquez. Um, Assen would follow next, where, where Mark Marquez would return to winning ways, um, Dre. But that doesn't come close to telling the story um, of, of this Grand Prix. I mean, Assen quite often delivers, much like Philip Island, because of the nature of the circuit. It's a very fast circuit. Bikes are able to follow closely in groups. It's very difficult to, to break a toe and break away from a group there. But boy, did this race deliver. I mean, the race of the year... Probably, um, you you might have one other contender on, but uh, Assen was a punch shop where a MotoGP race broke out somewhere in the middle of it, um, and it was a magnificent Grand Prix. It had everything you could want in a sheer chaotic GP. Um, you, you had a leading group of about seven dudes in there. You know, Alex Rins was in there, Mar- Marquez, both Yamahas, both Ducatis. Were in there. Johan Zarco and Kel were in there as well at one point. You know, Valentino Rossi literally rode into the rear end of 150 miles an hour going up the hill towards towards the uh, the final chicane, and that was barely even like on top of the list of crazy shit that went on in that race. Maverick Vinales and Mark had their first real scrimmage in, in a battle for the win. They both went wide um, with about five laps to go in it. And uh, that, as a result, we finally got the, uh, we've, we've, you know, we finally got Marquez at the end with about three to go saying, you know what, sod this. I'm going to take the lead here and I'm going to go all out, see if you can catch me. And then nobody could. And that's how Marquez, he's, he's got a knack of winning these really chaotic group races. And that is... Because he's just got an extra two temps in his pocket when when he needs it most, and that was why he was able to win it. But it was an incredible scrap. I mean, he and Rins and he took each other um, yeah. at, the, at, the, at the at the very slow turn five. They they hit each other, and Marquez was had one leg over the fairing at one point, like he was about to fall off, and somehow saved it. And it was barely in the top three of Marquez saves for the season. Um, again, it's funny how these things turn out, but uh, yeah. It, Epic Grand Prix, and one that was loaded with action pretty much from start to finish. And um, if you want to show a MotoGP race to a fan for the first time to give them an idea of how chaotic this series can be, that's a pretty good place to start. It is. And uh, I mean, King, just when you purely look at the results of that race, and you know, in, in 10 years' time, people will look back on uh, you know, the, the story of the 2018 MotoGP season and say, oh, yeah, Mark Marquez won. He, he won from pole position. He does plenty of that. But there was so much more to this race than that. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that kind of defines the Mark Marquez era, so to say, where on paper it always looks like, oh, Mark Marquez wins from pole. It is never that easy. But, it, yeah, it's, it's never that easy. It's always very close fights. But Mark Marquez has this very tactical nature to him. He always doesn't show his hand until he, unless he absolutely needs to. And when he does, it's spectacular. It is. It's brilliant to watch. I mean, we we saw an example of that in the the famous Philip Island race of, of 2017, where where Marquez would win uh, a group fight against a, a tribe of Yamahas, Vinales, Rossi, and Zarco, who were all trying to beat him. You know, and he was involved in there as well. Um, all of those riders were involved somewhere along the line. Uh, and Assen this year, as was Alex Rins, who would come through in the end to finish second, showing that late race pace, which would become kind of his trademark um, as the season would go on. Um, certainly into the later stages of it. Um, 
but but a tremendous Grand Prix. Uh, the Ducatis went wheel to wheel through the final chicane on a number of occasions. Obviously, Lorenzo was again towards the front of this race, but Dolby would kind of get the high ground back again. Um, and Assen, in the end, he would finish fourth, while Lorenzo uh, could only manage uh, seventh in the end. Um, a tremendous Grand Prix uh, that, as, as Dre mentioned, had so many uh, protagonists in it. It was so close right the way through. Ultimately, Mark Marquez would break away uh, with two or three laps to go. I think there was a moment where Dovizioso and Rossi had a bit of a battle into turn one, three or four laps from home, and that just gave him that break that he needed um, to yeah. pull away uh, and Ran win Rossi the Grand out. Prix. Yeah, Dovi ran Rossi out at turn one, and, and that was that. Um, Saxon Ring was next up, where, much as we've discussed uh, at Cota, this is another Mark Marquez stronghold um, as he took the win there. Um, leading Valentino Rossi and Maverick Vinales, who were second and third, Yamaha's ultimately their best combined team result of the year um, with second and third. And at this stage, rate, Mark Marquez were going to the summer break with a, I think it was a 46-point lead over Valentino Rossi, who was in second place. And ultimately, when we look back on Valentino's season, I would probably go as far as to say that the Saxoming was possibly his best ride of the lot um, of the season, because that's about as close as, um, I mean, Folger ran him close last year, but he, he pretty much kept Mark Marquez in sight for much of that, that Saxoming race, which... It's a pretty hard thing to do around the Saxon Ring, given how good Mark Marquez is around there. It's not particularly a favoured Yamaha circuit either. Um, and obviously, it's the best result that Valentino Rossi achieved all season. It's his one second place, and he had um, he had a number of third places to go with that. He had uh, four mm. third places as well. Um, and this would ultimately be Valentino Rossi's last podium finish of the year, which again, sounds remarkable to say. But when we look at Valentino Rossi's 2018 season as a whole... Um, I mean, I'd, I'd probably say it's his best season since 2015. Would you agree? Probably is, yeah. I mean, again, we, we've been well documented over the range from uncompetitive to dumpster fire, depending on which track you're on over the course of the 2018 season. And it, it's a, actually quite a testament that Rossi, you know, was that third place finisher. Um, when, again, the only two guys above him was Dovi and Marcus, who were the clear top two in the championship this year again. Every, out of everybody else, it, it was Valentino Rossi, despite the fact he didn't have a podium for half the season and didn't win a race. It, it was just that consistency and dragging that Yamaha into play um, during many of their weaker rounds. And Rossi took a lot of the credit for that when Yamaha was struggling. And to be fair, he did ride very, very... His first half was excellent. He was still... Like, at this point, he was still an outside title contender at this point in time, purely because he didn't make very many mistakes. Um, yeah, he really hadn't done to that point in the season. He just got the best he could out at Yamaha, and every weekend he couldn't. He, he, he got a level of sympathy, obviously, because of Argentina as well. He was taken out by Marquez. But, uh, you know, he'd already had five podiums to that point in the year going into the break, and he was just hanging on in there. Like, that was Saxon Ring Race was probably the story of his season, just keeping Marquez in eyeballs whip for a little bit before Marquez really put his foot down after the break. But um, yeah, it was a, it was a solid weekend for Yamaha, arguably the best of the year, pound for pound, even if they couldn't get Marquez. Seeing both of their guys in second and third gave us a little bit of promise for about a round or two. Mm. It did. And, and, and King, um, Yamaha's season as a whole, um, they, they struggled for much of the year. Amazingly, they took the race for the team's championship to the wire in Valencia, which sounds bizarre, but believe it or not, they mm. did go into the final round of the season. Movistar Yamaha with the chance of winning the team's championship, um, which probably says more about how Repsol Honda are essentially fighting with just one runner 
um, for much of the season. Um, but but Movistar Yamaha season, they, I suppose in some ways their riders can be you know, praised for getting the best out of a bad situation. I mean, Maverick himself had, although he came in for quite a bit of criticism this season, he had um, five podiums, which includes the one Yamaha win for the year. And of course, we'll come on to Philip Island a bit later. But just how has this team regressed um, in recent years? Of course, we, we look back on 2015 where they basically had the championship all to themselves between Rossi and Lorenzo. In 2016, even though Marquez won the title, he could probably make a case that Yamaha had the best bike. Their riders just kept falling over themselves trying to chase Mar- Marquez down for the title. Um, 2017, they started to fall back from Ducati and Honda. But at the moment, Yamaha seem on the back of their 2018 season king, Yamaha seem further from the front than perhaps they've ever been. Yeah, like if I had to put make a like a comparison, I'd probably compare them to <clears throat> Red Bull Racing in Formula One, where <clears throat> they're clearly ahead of most of the rest of the field, but they're still slightly out of touch with the top two. They could still, you know, consistently get podiums, uh, <clears throat> but they're not consistently winning races anymore. No, they're 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 getting occasional wins, and they. Until Mario Mignanas' you know, getaway win in Phillip Island, they were genuinely looking like they were going to go the season winless, Dre. I mean, we went into that Phillip Island weekend, which we'll obviously come on to later in the show, thinking this is Yamaha's own last hope. This is their last shot of a win this year. Um, and, of course, they would get it. But but, but where, do you, where do you stand on Yamaha, not just from their 2018 season, uh, but going forward? I mean, another of the standout moments of the season, Austria, where Yamaha's top brass had to come out in their team... Uh, hospitality and apologize publicly on behalf of basically for their riders for the lack of competitiveness of the M1. Um, Valentino Rossi had started that race 14th on the grid. Maverick Mignales hadn't started much further forward than than, than Valentino did. Um, But the bike was as uncompetitive as it had been basically in the MotoGP era. And based on where they are at the end of 2018, yes, they had a bit of a renaissance late season, but do you, as we sit here now, think that Yamaha are in any way capable, as we stand now, of launching a title challenge next season? Or is their target for 2019 just to become relatively regular winners again? One step at a time. Start winning races more frequently. They only have five in the last two seasons. That's not going to win them anything, um, no matter which way they slice it. So, yeah, as far as I'm concerned, they need to be do- they need to be doing more. And and they need to start thinking about regular wins and going to Simon Pass. And it seems like it's a lot of the same old story for Yamaha when they're getting in testing. Even even though Maverick was on top of the testing sheets and uh, well, for more, several days in Valencia and in her ref, um, it's the same old story. The engine seems to be part of the problem. They're struggling to you know generate what they need to get it up there. Um, so yeah, it's it's a lot of the same old stuff with them. Just just generally speaking, struggling. And where do I sit on this? It's a weird dynamic because I mentioned this at the end of the Valencia race, how Valentino Rossi had taken all the credit for bringing that Yamaha into play, but yet he only finished five points ahead of Maverick Vinales, who, once again, when the bike was performing well, is better at generating top-line results. Um, It's a weird dynamic, and it's, it's becoming clearer to me that Yamaha needs to decide what they want to do with their bike going forward. They're like... Valentino Rossi is in the twilight of his career. Um, we don't know how say, much... The... In deciding yeah. which direction Yamaha are going for the future, are they essentially picking and choosing between their riders? 
Yeah, it's, it's... They're gonna have to do that at some point, because, like, Valentino Rossi still amazingly has two years left on his current deal, so they're gonna, barring a shock retirement early, Rossi's got two more years left, and he'll be riding at 41 next year. They hired Maverick Vinales, at least for where I'm sitting, to be the market stopper. So... It's a weird dynamic. Like, why did you hire Maverick playing second fiddle to Valentino? Like that, I'm I'm 99% sure that was not the plan because Rossi has not been a main contender for three years now. So when you add all of that up, uh, and and like Yamaha needs to make a call. They've got to make a decision. This are, are they going to go all in, try and get him into play and give Rossi what he wants? Or are they thinking long term, uh, and they are they going to start really building the team around Maverick Vinales, who was kicking up a stink by this point in the season and broken up with with, with Ramon Forcada, his crew chief, by the time we got to Bruno and some of the drama that had, had alongside of it. Um, it it's it, it's going to be hard for Yamaha to make that decision because they've got two very different dynamics in both sides of their camp, and they can only really please one of them. And, and Maverick Vinales, uh, King. I mean. He he's as Joe mentioned, he was brought in as the Marquez stopper, but I, I think Yamaha, uh, I think they brought him in to essentially prove to them that he could lead that team long term going forward by beating Valentino Rossi. And I think that's probably what Lynn Jarvis deep down was was hoping to see from Maverick. He wanted to see Maverick come in, take control of that team, uh, having replaced Lorenzo, and show that he could essentially just seamlessly slot in where Lorenzo was. And when we look at Maverick Vinales' this season as a whole, yes, he finished five points behind Valentino Rossi. And finished fourth overall, but I think that flatters him to an extent because, of course, Valentino Rossi crashed out of what might well have been a win in Malaysia, uh, where he, he gave up potentially 25 points there and he would have been second had he not crashed in Valencia, too. So, Valentino Rossi left a lot of points on the table in the final two races, uh, which brought Maverick Vinales closer to him. And, and when I look at Maverick Vinales, King, I still think there's a, there's a mental fragility there, which for a rider who Yamaha would be expecting to be championship ready if the bike is ready. You should be expecting Mario Vinales to be better than that, shouldn't you? Yeah, like to a certain extent that like you said, they wanted to bring in Maverick to be the team leader and it it just hasn't played out that way that Rossi's personality and sort of, I would say following is so strong that it's almost automatically just pushed Maverick to the side where the team kind of wanted to settle into a place where they want to come up with uh, a package in a bike and an entire race program that could beat Honda and Marquez maybe two or three years down the line. But the fact that Rossi has been very vocal about how the bike isn't performing well right now that the team should be focusing on trying to win races right now it's kind of pushed like the whole big picture long-term goals thing completely to the side mm, it, it is and i think to uh just to, to, to sort of underline that uh, dre's point about how close they were in the championship at the end um, just looking through the season as a whole the 18 races that we got because let's not forget one race on the calendar got cancelled which we'll get on to shortly uh, but Silverstone. In the 80 races we got, Maverick Vinales beat Rossi eight times. Rossi beat Maverick ten times. Um, but, of course, the times Maverick beat Rossi were the times when the big points were up for grabs, um, mm. which brought him very close to him um, in the championship. Um, and in the end, that's that's what we got. But Yamaha 
there are still a lot of questions to be answered long-term for that Yamaha team. Because, of course, they, as I mentioned, they're expecting Maverick Vinales to be their, their long-term pick, but he's not necessarily doing what he needs to do on track to justify that faith. And um, we're, we're seeing testing take, taking place this week, Dre, where Yamaha are trying to figure out their direction for next year. And Maverick Vinales is almost trying to make their mind up for them by going on time attacks in testing to try and prove that he's clearly the faster of the two riders and therefore should be backed long-term. But surely mm. the way you earn that trust and surely the way that you prove that you're the team's best hope long-term is by doing the business on track. And surely Maverick Vinales has to accept that there are going to be times, no matter how good your bike is, Mark Marquez will tell you this, there are going to be times where your bike isn't necessarily working and you're going to have to just get the best points that are on offer. Um, Maverick Vinales still, even at this stage, doesn't seem to have the the sort of the mental capacity to to do that when the bike isn't working. Indeed, but the weird dynamic of that is, is that we get beat Valentino Rossi by twenty two points last year, so it, it's gone back and forth. They're one on one as teammates now, and Rossi didn't exactly make it a convincing victory by the time he got to the end of the season. He actually got worse as the season went on, while Maverick got a little bit better. It's but, weird. But ultimately, if Maverick Vinales is going to prove hmm. to Lynn Jarvis and Yamaha that he is their long term pick, he's got to do it on the track, whether the bike's working or not. Exactly. Like you, you, you need. I don't want to be too cliche here, but I say championship mentality, where it's like you've got to pick up the best available points you can every single weekend. You do that, and sometimes the championship will come back to you in the end. That's what happened with guys like Marquez and Dovi, where they've not made very, very many errors, and they've let the other people make errors for them. It's part of the reason Marquez ended up dominating the championship this year. Maverick's not been able to do that. How many times did we see it in races where he started okay, but then lost three or four places off the start line? He's fallen back through the order and he's taken them half the race to get back where he started again. We saw it in Qatar. We saw it in Mugello. We saw it in Austria. Races where he just struggled badly and Rossi was making him look amateurish out there. And yeah, he was able to spare some of his blushes at the end of the year, but if Maverick is, is going to be the true Marquez stopper that Yamaha wants him to be, he needs better results when the bike is not on form, otherwise it's never going to happen. The summer break uh, came to an end, and we resumed MotoGP racing with the Czech Republic Grand Prix at Brno. There's only one person that we go to to this one, and that's the person who was there, um, Andre Harrison, who who was at Brno um, with um, one of the greatest sort of you know acts of bravery I think I've ever seen by going into a Monster Energy sponsored suite wearing a Mark Marquez uh, baseball cap. Um, that's the police. I, I, admire your bravery there, Drake. Um, in, in what must Thanks, have been man. a very pro Valentino Rossi environment. Um, oh, just a tad. Yep. But but what a race you saw! And one of the forgotten races, really, of 2018. That was really oh, a God, tremendous yeah. race that went down to the wire. A three-way fight um, between the two Ducatis and Mark Marquez, which was really what the season was turning into at that stage. Um, we pretty much knew going into any given weekend that the race winner would be one of those three riders. Um, on this occasion, it was Dovi, but. In many ways, I think Jorge Lorenzo was the man that made that race with some daring overtaking. 
He did, and then we had that really ambitious double Two overtake. He tried. <laughs> Two and one into that final chicane, taking the real pin line. He was able, Duffy was able to get him back on the exit. Uh, it's almost like he's seen this before from another guy in orange. But um, yeah, it, it is the forgotten, fantastic race of 2018. We forget, and, and to be fair, how did I forget? I was actually there in person. Um, like I, I, I forgot just how brilliant that race was. Um, it was an epic race. Those three guys were again at the time the three best riders in the world and they were the three guys who were clearly a touch better than Crutchlow and Rossi they're in the second group behind them with Danilo Petrucci and whatnot but those three guys broke off and we had a war it was it, it was a race that had everything we had daring overtakes we had Marquez trying to figure out ways of getting around Lorenzo those two were getting into blood feud Dovi was just holding station most of the time tactically there was a lot of tactics where they were saving pace Sitting in the executive box for that one and having the live timing in front of you made it was actually was it actually made the race more fascinating to watch because you could see what they were doing lap time wise and all three of them set their personal best and including the fastest lap of the race from Andrea De Vizioso on the final lap of the Grand Prix so they they were saving themselves for the last two laps and they they, they left it all on the table and Dovi won it by essentially two bike lengths over um, over his teammate and Mark Marquez. Lorenzo just couldn't figure out a way through. Um, it was a magnificent Grand Prix, a low-key race of the year candidate that, again, has kind of been forgotten about in, due, due to the summer break and whatnot. But uh, again, a brilliant freeway fight for the victory. Yeah, brilliant freeway fight for the victory. Valentino Rossi was next up in fourth, having kind of mugged Cal Crutchlow at the very last corner uh, of the race, mm. which is another moment that I know Dre uh, remembers uh, rightly as the uh, the grandstand erupted, having seen Valentino Rossi oh, yes. um, pull off that move at the very last corner to, to take fourth place. Um, but King... Uh, Ducati would follow this up what was the second 1-2 of the season to go with the 1-2 that Lorenzo led uh, at Mugello with another victory in Austria uh, a circuit that has uh, favoured Ducati ever since it's come back on the calendar they are undefeated there um, since MotoGP returned to Austria um, with three different riders actually as it goes Yanone winning in, in, 15, in 16 followed by a Dovi win last year and a Lorenzo win this year um, but I think it was at this stage of the season having taken back-to-back victories in the space of seven days that I think we were genuinely starting to think at this stage, weren't we, King, that did Ducati have the best bike on the grid now? Yeah, it was that strange situation where the, the, the Ducatis have always, you know, been great in a straight line, high-speed situations, but suddenly, I don't know how or why they started find, finding the pace in the corners to keep up with the Hondas and keep the Hondas, and most, most importantly, behind them. Yeah, because that was, that's what probably stands out to me, Dre, from that Austrian Grand Prix, with mm. the battle between Lorenzo and Marquez, and how it was almost the complete opposite of the Dovi-Marquez battle we saw a year prior, where Mark Marquez would just pull metres out of the Ducati through the fast corners, particularly the fast lefts in the third sector, um, mm. and then Dovi would just completely drop Mark Marquez under braking for corners and out of corners. But yeah. it was almost the complete flip reversal of that in, in 2018, and it just showed us how... Not only how much Honda had improved their bike on acceleration, but also how the Ducati bike, which was famously known as, as King mentioned, as a bike that would just fire out of corners but not necessarily go around them too quickly. Mm. This Ducati was now cornering well. It was cornering well. It was leaning in well. It now become the great field where it was fast as all hell, could take high and low speed corners well. 
And that was the story of the race. Jorge Lorenzo was demonically quick in the second half of the lap. In sectors three and four, where they get the, the sweeping, slower corners that are out there, the slightly quicker corners, and, and, the, and the run up to turns nine and ten. Lorenzo was super fast, and that's where he won the Grand Prix against Marquez, who was taking temps out of him um, on the home straight, on the run up towards turns two and three. And if anything, you know, Marquez might have actually been a bit too conservative in fighting Lorenzo on that final lap and might have just gotten away with it as Lorenzo took the win here. Maybe Marquez was thinking championship yeah, overall. He was at a stage, rather. wasn't he, where he could now afford to be conservative. Yeah, he forgot about 60 points in hand by this point in time. So he was like, you know what? I don't have 20 points. is fine. And, you know, Lorenzo took the win. But uh, Marquez got a very smart second place. And... Um, and yeah, Lorenzo rode brilliantly. And again, we saw the, the shifting dynamics um, between the two of them in the course of that fight for the win. Also, on a, on a small side note, if you have not watched the Moto2 race from that weekend, go out of your way to do so. The mm. Miguel Oliveira, Francisco Magnaia fight from that Grand Prix is as good as you will see on track all year. Again, it's very similar dynamic. Two guys, very different bikes, very different um, characteristics. And... Uh, they beat the shit out of each other till the final corner for 27 laps. Um, it's a brilliant race. And I know we're probably not doing a Moto2 in free season review this year, but I have to point out just how brilliant that Moto2 race was. Mm, absolutely. It was a tremendous display of two riders who have just proved why they are uh, MotoGP stars of the future. And Banyai is already becoming a MotoGP star. He's not even started a race in the Premier Clash yet. Uh, Mark Marquez, just to uh, confirm, left Austria with a 59-point championship lead and it was a championship lead still over Valentino Rossi uh, who came from 14th on the grid in that Austrian Grand Prix following that public apology from his uh, his bosses at Yamaha to finish 6th <laughs> um, which was probably another of his best rides of the season to go with his ride at the Saxon Ring um, Jorge Lorenzo with his victory went ahead of Davizioso in the championship by a point into 3rd place but they were both well they were 71 and 72 points respectively off the championship lead and essentially out of it already um we have to mention the next race weekend ray even though we never got a race uh, in the end <laughs> unquestionably the low point of the 2018 MotoGP season was that silverstone weekend <laughs> do, do we have to go here mm. um, unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately i actually did go there um yeah oh geez um like uh yeah, like as, as Cal points out, that might be low key winner of the Golden Cock yeah. of the Motorsport One Hundred and One Awards in about <laughs> in about yeah. in about three that weeks Sunday time. was around eight hours of my life I will never get back. Yeah, like I was I was staying at my girlfriend's at the time, listening like show, and like I distinctively remember sitting back thinking of you at that race, Silverstone. Thinking- they're not going to run this race, are they? I feel so bad for Lewis down there. And uh, it, the weather was miserable. It did not stop raining all day. And, well, we saw from practice and qualifying that the track had no signs of being able to drain any any water off of it. We had a, we had puddles going down towards the hangar straight um, in that sense. Um, and, you know, we, we mentioned it before. Tito Rabat really did take one for the team that weekend where... He completely obliterated his leg. He broke it in three different places. Um, 
crashing down the bottom of the hangar straight into Stowe at the best part of 170 miles an hour under braking. And if it wasn't for guys like Alex Rins pointing out, like, guys, slow it the fuck down. Yeah, There's a puddle right there. Out, yeah. yeah, he might have saved a life that day because it was it was like it was horrendous conditions all weekend long um the riders took a stand did not want to race out there in those conditions um and of course as, as the day went on it, it quickly became quite clear that this track had no chance of drying out and the, the whole race had to be abandoned you can't really run a grand prix weekend on a monday these these like these marshals that enable us to go out and race in probably already have full-time jobs as it is They've got to go back to work tomorrow. You can't hire a security team for an extra day. The logistics of running a Grand Prix on a Monday um, after a weekend is impossible. You just can't do it. So the whole race had to be abandoned. Um, uh, nobody scored. Um, and it's, it's sad because, of course, that was the worst case scenario. Obviously, daughter would never want to do that. Daughter are normally very, very good at finding compromises and finding ways to, to, to enable everybody to go out and race him. But... Unfortunately, the track layers at Silverstone had made that impossible to run a safe MotoGP race in those conditions. And so much so it actually affected British Superbikes a couple of weeks later during during their prelude to the showdown, um, the regular season finale, where they had to run on a national layout in the circuit because there was still um, drainage issues potentially down for that part of the track. And British Superbikes didn't want to take that chance after they had their own very dangerous race the year prior. So... Yeah, um, it, it was a hot mess of a weekend. It, it exposed just how awful the track resurfacing um, guys were. So much so they were frigging suing the press for disparaging yeah. comments about I mean, it, um, which was totally deserved. Yeah, I mean, ag <laughs> aggregate UK proving the uh, the fact that the, the phrase all publicity is good publicity isn't necessarily true um, <laughs> for, for what they yeah. went through following that weekend. Um, yeah, I wonder how that legal pursuit of Matt Oxley is going. Um, <laughs> but, but but yeah, um, I guess we'll find out before uh, next year's British Grand Prix whether that race goes ahead or not. Um, but but yeah, um, don't spare a thought necessarily for me. Spare a thought for my uh, checkered flag colleague Alice Sipolat. Who uh, hi Alice, if you're listening, who was absolutely <laughs> shivering in her winter coat um, in the, uh, in the winter center. it was that cold. Um, oh and, uh, lord, Silverstone as it as it absolutely pissed it down with rain um, on the Sunday. Um, they Dorna from their point of view kind of did. Uh, on the actual weekend itself, did all they could to try and get a race on, including bringing the race forward a couple of hours to try and beat the worst of the rain. Unfortunately, the rain arrived about 15 minutes before the race was started. They were actually sat on the grid ready to go um, for mm. the race before they decided that this is too wet. We even had a morning warm-up on the Sunday in the dry, um, which is um, sounds a bit silly, I suppose, but they, they just could not run the race that early in the day because they needed a warm-up before the race started and they needed to have three mm. hours. So they, unless they had a warm-up at 5 a.m., they couldn't have ran the race in the dry at all. Um, so Dorna were kind of kind of shafted on that one. Um, but I think they learned lessons in that they, they now have to do a bit more due diligence on a circuit before running it, uh, running a Grand Prix there. And that includes testing it in both dry and wet conditions. So I think that's a big lesson that Dorna and MotoGP as a whole has learned from that weekend. Um, but King, as Tito Rabat probably won't feel this way, but in some ways we're kind of it's kind of a good thing that that incident happened um, on the Saturday because it, it flagged up to all of us just how dangerous that part of the circuit at Silverstone was. Um, because I still feel that had that incident on the Saturday not happened at the end of Hangar Straight, say that Saturday and Friday had been dry uh, at that British Grand Prix weekend, 
and we have seen those conditions on the Sunday, I just have a terrible sort of scenario in my head, King, of that MotoGP race starting and the entire field barreling into Hangar Straight and all out chaos ensuing. Yeah, because all it, all it takes is one rider to go down, and you're in a you're in a crowd of bikes. It's impossible to get out of the way. It is. It, it would have been it would have been disastrous. There would have been some serious injuries around um, on that Sunday had had we not had the warning. And as I say, it was it was not the way we wanted to have a warning because Tito about had his leg very badly broken and has only just in the last week or so ridden a motorcycle again. Uh, since that injury, he would not race again for the rest of the season after that. Um, but but yeah, it gave us the warning that you know this is what can happen if you race in these conditions. You just cannot do it. Um, and, and thankfully, uh, they didn't. Obviously, it was it was it was a, a sort of a losing scenario for for us as fans um, and for those that obviously paid to get into Silverstone. Obviously, I, I didn't, so I can't really um, call too much sympathy for what happened on the Sunday. Um, but for mm-hmm. the seventy thousand fans that turned up on the uh, on the Sunday at Silverstone, shivered in the grandstands all day, just hearing delay after delay with the hope that a race would still go ahead. And then at about quarter past four in the afternoon to find out that it had been cancelled was just was just rough for everyone. No one came out of that race weekend um, as a winner at all. Everyone lost, uh, unfortunately, on that weekend. And I think the recriminations mm. are going to continue before uh, MotoGP goes there next season. The British Grand Prix is still on the calendar for, for next season at the end of August. 2019 but it is subject to the circuit being homologated um and you would assume that dawn are going to want some serious questions answered before motor gp races at silverstone again uh now on to more positive things motor gp returned uh at mizano for the next round of the championship unfortunately they did race that weekend partly because uh the sun was out all weekend and it was absolutely baking hot um once again dre it was set up as a ducati honda head-to-head um, with Andrea Vizioso, Jorge Lorenzo, um, and Mark Marquez. Lorenzo was on pole position, um, and it, it looked like that was the race we were going to have. It was a bit of a cat and mouse battle between Lorenzo, Marquez, and Vizioso until a moment around half distance where we saw something that we don't often see from Andrea Vizioso because it's not usually his style, but boy, did he pull the pin. <laughs> the, the hammer um, was the Stole the Jorge Lorenzo's hammer and Dovi pulls out a new lab record and the race was over. <laughs> right there and then. It was done. Dovi was about a second and a half in front and nobody else could catch it. Dovi had had the race one in hand and it became a big fight for second. Um and in between Jorge Lorenzo and Mark Marquez um, in the fight for the silver medal in this, on, on this occasion. And um, if you've ever seen that scene in The Simpsons when Lisa tells Ralph he doesn't like her anymore, and then Bart on the video on, on the video player goes, you can pinpoint the exact moment where Ralph's heart shatters. Replace that line with, you can, you can feel the very moment when Jorge Lorenzo's season went up in smoke. Oh. <laughs> and, 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 you, and you can play the, 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 the slow motion button as Lorenzo falls at the bottom of the hairpin with two laps to go. And you've got to say, Marquez basically bullied Lorenzo into a mistake and basically taking revenge for Austria. Um, Lorenzo goes down from second. He, he looked like he had a fairly comfortable second place um, in the end. He, he, like Amazingly, Lorenzo's mentality was, and I quote, I thought I could still win. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. 
what? <laughs> what crack are you on? He was two seconds down the road. Um, so L Lorenzo like could, like clearly had like you know blood in the water, and he felt I'm, I'm going to chase him down here. He was clearly going above the limit, lost the front of the hairpin, down he goes, and Lorenzo's slim chances of a title quickly went with it as Marquez would take a very comfortable second in the end as it started a run, um, not entirely of his own doing, but uh, a run of six straight races without a point. Mm, yeah, it, it was it was here where it started. And uh, yeah, I was going to say, if, uh, if, if, if Mizano was the moment where uh, Mark Marquez rode over or Jorge Lorenzo's um, sort of heart. It was Aragon where he reversed back over it. Um, because uh, when we go to the start of the Aragon Grand Prix, Dre's already mentioned, King, that it was kind of that Mizano moment was the moment that Jorge Lorenzo's season started to unravel. It was Aragon where it really started to tailspin out of control. And at a moment that, that got us all talking, Mark Marquez going up the inside of Jorge Lorenzo into turn one, Aragon, taking uh, the lead from Lorenzo, who'd been on pole for that race. Um, with something of a block pass into turn one. Lorenzo's reaction was to high-side himself out of the race and cause an injury that he wouldn't really recover from, um, arguably, until until now. He still probably hasn't recovered from it. Um, but Jorge Lorenzo's opinion after the race of that move of Mar Marquez. Um, <laughs> King, where do you stand on it? Um, block passes into turn one. Apparently, Jorge Lorenzo feels they're against the spirit of the sport. <laughs> oh dear uh, sorry I had, to, I had to do it go on king sorry it, it, it felt like it felt like mark marquez winning tko round 14 where like jorge's like that move was completely uncalled for when you step back and look at it, it's like so no one's allowed to race in the first corner? Like, yeah. no, 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 I'm just saying that that move is unsportsmanlike. No, you're saying that no one should race in the first corner. What I don't understand is that in that incident, Marquez was about four feet away from Lorenzo's at all times. I don't know. Like, I've seen the overhead shots. I don't know. I can't think of a rational way you could possibly blame Marquez for Lorenzo being hung out to dry. Um, like, Lorenzo was... Like, I don't even I don't even want to say he was forced. I genuinely think Lorenzo outbroke himself into the first corner. Yeah, like, yeah, Lorenzo outbroke himself, and then it was his attempt to try and turn the bike sort of sharply left to try and get himself back onto the racetrack that caused the crash. The rear came yeah. round and high-sided him. If he just let let the brake off and ran over the, the, sort of the tarmac on the outside of the circuit, he'd have been able to carry on and race. He'd have lost a lot of places, but he'd have carried on. He tried Indeed. to sort of, you know, anchor the bike left, try and stay on it, and ultimately that was it was kind of productive. That basically fired him off it because the high sided the rear suddenly gripped um, mm. and, and caused the accident. And Jorge Lorenzo's season wouldn't recover from there. He'd have that dreadful accident in free practice in Thailand, which was not his fault. The uh, the Ducati no. seized up under braking and and again caused a, a dreadful high side that injured Lorenzo even further. But yeah, his season was ultimately over from that point on. Um, his race was over at Aragon at Turn 1, but a race continued in his absence. And uh, uh, what at that point, Dre, was something of a first. A Marquez de Vizioso head-to-head, but Marquez won. Huh? What? Um, it's a thing? Um, yes, welcome to Dovi versus Marquez 4, Marquez Corner Edition. Um, and this, this was another fun one, folks. Dre, you and only 
to intercept for about three quarters of the race, including that brilliant moment where they're going three wide into the penultimate chicane. They're taking three different lines. And very briefly, Andrea Ianoni leads then gets then gets ends up being the meat in a Dovi Marquez sandwich down the back straight. Um, this was another low key brilliant race. Um, the one that we, we another one we don't really talk about at all. But Aragon was another fantastic GP. Um, again, we had again yeah, Marquez who had just had a bloody corner named after him at Aragon. Yes. He, he, but turn ten was now officially Marquez corner. Um, yeah, you know, he picked. He, he, he apparently could have had any corner he wanted. He chose turn ten, the fast sweeping left hander over the crest. Excellent choice, if you ask me. Mm. Um, and yeah, we had Marquez versus Dovi four. And in in this edition, um, Marquez had a different strategy. It was like, you know what, three laps to go. I'm going to take the front, and I'm going to race as hard as I possibly can. Can you overtake me? And Dovi just didn't have enough in the tank. It seemed only that Marquez had saved enough tyre um, in the first half of the race following Dovi and Ianoni and others in that leading group. And Marquez had turned it on at the end and he, he was able to save enough tyres to be able to just break out half a second. And it was enough for Marquez to win the Grand Prix. And it was proof that, you know, really... Yeah, Marquez could beat Dovi in a straight fight and really put one hand on the championship for him. Yeah, come at me at your peril. Uh, says Cowboys, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, Dovi ultimately couldn't uh, couldn't get back at him. Um, if Assen was the, the one race that has a legitimate claim for being the MotoGP race of the year, um, Dre's already mentioned, King, that one other perhaps has a claim. Is this next race the one that has the claim as well of being the best race of the season? The Thai Grand Prix, the first ever... MotoGP race yes. uh, at Buriram. Um King, I think this was a race that showcased the best of MotoGP in many ways. Not just for what we saw on track, but for how Thailand received MotoGP. An absolute sellout. Yeah, it was it was the best of MotoGP in terms of on track and off track. The fans, uh, the riders, like you really, I don't know, the, the way they laid out the podium, you could really tell how, exactly how the riders felt about the race without them having to say anything. Mm. And, and a, a, a rare feeling and a, a nice feeling in MotoGP of seeing Matt Marquez win a race and not get booed on the podium. Um, which, which <laughs> Man, is nice it changed, didn't it? Yeah, it makes a nice change. If only we race in Thailand a bit more often. Um, I, mean, mm. I mean, Dre, we... From seeing many years of World Superbikes race around there, we I think we were expecting this circuit to just play beautifully for MotoGP. It was just it just seems to suit great motorcycle racing. It seems to promote great motorcycle racing, as we we saw with the the Ray versus Sykes battle in World Superbikes, and and even the races this year. Although Jonathan Ray and Chaz Davies took fairly comfortable wins, there were two great races um, mm. in Thailand. Um, but the MotoGP race was something else, and. Uh, Marquez versus Dovi 5. Um, again, this one would go Mark Marquez's way. And uh, this was Mark Marquez truly getting his own back on Vizioso because it was a final corner battle on the brakes that Mark Marquez would win. Yes, uh, round five, kids. Seconds out. And uh, in this case, it was a Dovi out at the final corner. It, it, it was kind of funky, this one. Um, it's funny because the Yamahas that were there... Man basically had the best seats in the house um they got to watch as these two went to war for the second time this season really the third time really if you want to count it like that but uh yeah um again like the Yamahas were never quite close enough to really make a lunging move Marquez or Dovi but uh 
again, it was a, it was an alternate strategy that won the day for Marquez. He let Dovi, um, like he let he was gonna let Dovi take the front, but then this time Marquez took the front, and he knew what was gonna happen. Dovi was always going to try a lunge into the final corner hairpin, um, if Marquez was leading going into it, and you know Marquez tried to block it off, couldn't do it. Um, Dovi had taken a very narrow line. He was always going to come up wide on, on, on the apex. He did. Marquez cuts back inside and had the sheer audacity to wheelie over the line still, despite only winning by basically a length. Yeah, um, on, 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 on 0.1 of a second over the line. It was the close, I think it was like the fifth closest GP finish for a podium in history. Mm. Um, only two temps covering he, Dovi, and, and Maverick Vinales in third. Rossi had run on at the last hairpin trying to desperately get a podium that he couldn't quite get. But uh, yeah, it was a magnificent Grand Prix. It was a magnificent weekend. Um, Thailand had, had, had taken to MotoGP like a duck to water. Um, the PR events, you know, they, they loved Marquez in there. Marquez having the white rose on the podium as a celebration was very clever. Um, and I Low-key, if you can dig it up and find it again, which I think is a, a great low-key video gem of the season, there is a 45-second clip on MotoGP social media page of a hard camera on Marquez and Dovi in the shopping in the golf cart heading towards the podium just talking about the race. And it was fascinating to hear them talk about, you know, front tire temperatures, how, you know, he saw that Dovi had put in the fastest lap of the race earlier on, and, like, Dovi said to Marquez, no, no, I was right on the limit doing, I think it was a 35-6, it was, I, I was on the limit doing that lap, and having to save some tire, and, you know, how the race had played out. It was, it's a fascinating clip, I highly recommend you go out of your way, if you, if you don't know. Maverick didn't have a care in the world in third, he was on the other side of the cart, but, but, uh, yeah. He was just happy to be there, after the <laughs> Exactly. I think Yamaha were amazed that they were that competitive in Thailand. We were expecting them to struggle badly uh, at Buriram, but um, through a curious um, sort of quirk that that Yamaha just seemed to come alive on the uh, harder mm. Michelin tyre, which just about everyone, unless your name is Alicia Spargo, had to race with, um, <laughs> kind of brought the Yamahas into play um, because everyone had to race on the uh, tyre combination that suited the Yamaha down to the ground. That M1 just seemed to work on the harder front and rear Michelins. Um, but yeah, it was one of those races where I'm not one of those, I have to say, that feels the need to see or feel that I am seeing riders or drivers, depending on what series I'm watching, pushing 100%, which I know some people, that seems to make or break motorsport for them, um, a feeling that they're watching everyone pushing 100%. But that final lap at Buriram between Marquez and Davizioso, you can visibly see them on the <laughs> limit, um, particularly breaking that yes. final corner, the shape that Davizioso's Ducati is in. As he's trying to get that thing stopped for that final right hand. Yeah, he's basically pointing hard left as he's breaking for a right handed corner. Um, and in the end, Mark Marquez sees him coming, lets him through on the inside, and then just basically does what Dobby did to him uh, on two occasions last year and again in Qatar at the start of this year and just went back up the inside on the exit of the corner to win the race. It was a tremendous display um, as those two really demonstrated Dre as they were doing at this stage of the season, obviously following on the hot on the hills of Aragon that they were clearly the best two riders in the world once again, just as they were mm. last year. And we saw that again in Mategi. This was the first race where Marc Marquez could win the championship. He needed to win the race um, or basically finish ahead of Davizioso um, to ensure that he'd win the championship, um, which he ultimately would do. But up until the moment that Andre Davizioso crashed two laps from home, we had another great head-to-head -head battle between Marquez and Davizioso. And... Uh, Sad in many ways that the championship was decided this way with Davizioso falling on his sword and crashing on the penultimate lap, but 
it was the pressure once again that Marc Marquez put on his rivals. And Davizioso, who had been, uh, pretty much since the summer break, had been wheel perfect. He finally broke. Indeed. Uh, but you know, I think that's quite an honourable go out. Yeah. I'm going to win this race or crash that's... trying. Like, it, it, like, like King can really be in the Nico Ross. Who can forget 2014? Died, told to park it, and then Rosberg said to his his crew chief, "I want to finish the race. Can I please finish the race?" He was he was he was going to fall in on his sword, and I loved that ending. I was like, like it, it was the moment I think everyone was like, "Yeah, Rosberg's a cool dude. He fell on his sword with honor, <laughs> and, 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 and like any true gladiator, that's how he went out." And I've said it before, and I will say it again, like. If Dovi goes down of his own accord, you probably know he was over the limit trying to win that race because Dovi's such a calculated rider. He's a thinking man's rider. He always has been. I mean, Le Mans was probably more down to a lapse of concentration than anything else. Um, and maybe Catalina on, can fall into that one as well. But that was and a he's dog. Such a smooth rider. It's very rare that you yeah. see Davizioso or Ducati making shapes like that. It doesn't. He's normally dirt smooth so you know if he's super smooth so like if Dovi has fallen like that you know he has done it because he's pushed to the absolute limit and then beyond it it was like at Valencia where the season before he'd fallen on his sword as well it's, it's just Dovi admitted after the race yeah I was over the limit trying to keep up with with Pedrosa and Zarco just trying to win the race because I knew it was my best chance I had to win and he Ducati just literally did, did not have it in him the GP17 just didn't have it to be able to win at Valencia it was the same deal here in Marquez and Dovi it, it was all setting up for another classic Marquez Dovi last corner dogfight again only this time Dovi was pushed a little bit too hard. Marquez would go on to win the race and the championship, his seventh world championship in the end. He had his shoulder popped out by Scott Redding after the yes. race in fantastic fashion. And we had a magnificent celebration of the Level 7 Mark Marquez video game challenge. Available now on, on, on the App Store. Um, but, uh, but yeah, um, a, a magnificent celebration and the perfect cherry on top um, for a dominant Marquez season more than anything else. And uh, yeah, just a fantastic celebration to, to, to cap off a magnificent year. Um, brilliant stuff, all told. Yeah, Cam says, I need that shirt. I think, uh, I think Dre's already... I need that cap. Dre's already the cap as we speak. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think we all kind of, in our hearts of hearts, wanted to see that Marquez Davizioso battle in Mateki go down to the very final oh, corner. Oh, yeah. um, and even Mark Marquez King said after the race, it would have been nice to have Dovi with us on the podium for what he's given to, to this season. And whilst I think for many neutrals, the, the almost the dream scenario of MotoGP would be a Marquez-Rossi championship battle, given you know they are the two most popular riders in the sport and the rivalry between those two, almost that, that story would write itself. Um, but in many ways, how refreshing is it at the moment, King, in MotoGP to see a rivalry between two riders who are quite clearly the best two riders in the world at the moment with... Very different styles on a motorbike, but two riders, ultimately, who uh, are, have a rivalry that is built, if nothing else, on just pure respect between the two. Yeah, it's it's always great to have something like that. I think that's, uh, I would say, this is the, the antithesis of what the Marquez-Rossi rivalry is, where, like, mm. they absolutely... That's that's done. They this rivalry on the other <laughs> this rivalry on the other hand, they're clearly they they love competing against each other. That 
that a win that it's almost like they rather win against you know the other than anyone else yeah because we've seen uh so many battles between the two dre we've seen i mean we've mm. just we've already chronicled them on the show there's been five key battles that have been absolutely classic races to watch from our point of view that have seen block passes at the final corners and we've seen mm. Um, you know, battles on the brakes. We've seen just a great showcase of of overtaking between the two. We've seen, with the exception of one little flicker of the hand from Davizioso in Austria last year, um, we've never seen anything approaching, uh, you know, something that we, we would say has crossed the line between the two. And every no, single time we've seen these two battle to the finish in a race, a race that has gone down to the final corner, usually decided by a tenth of a second. We've always seen them shake hands in part for me, hug it out and have a quite light-hearted chat about the race they've just taken part in. I mean, this is a, this isn't, I mean, some people might not see this necessarily as one of MotoGP's great rivalries, but I certainly wouldn't. It's a rivalry that I think all neutrals can enjoy. They can enjoy the racing and not feel that they have to have a vitriolic argument on social media afterwards. Yeah, because I think that's been the thing with, with, uh, yeah, with, with Marquez and Rossi in the sense of, the way Rossi went about himself during that incident in Sepang in 2015 and the aftermath, it essentially forced fans to pick a side. You could not sit on the fence on that one. You were either Camp Marquez or Camp Rossi on this one. It's different with Marquez and Davizioso, where they are two guys, but they both have the utmost amount of respect for each other on and off the track. Um like they have never got over the line they've never really been anything more than good hard aggressive racing it's never crossed that line into you know major contact or someone's gone down as a result of the other man's actions like a, like a harefo six or anything like that it's never come down to that they've always had respect for each other they've never crossed that metaphorical line and they've always had the utmost respect for each other afterwards as well where they have both been able to shake each other's hands, hug it out, and appreciate the other's ability. And I do also remember how, you know, Marquez and Dovi, after that race on social media, both said to each other, you know, we brought out the best in each other. And that, for me, I think is what a racing rivalry is all about. You want to see two guys who were very different, but ultimately fighting for the same cause basically bring the best out of each other and as a result we get fantastic racing that for me is is what the crux of motorsport should always be it doesn't need to be bitter it doesn't need to generate pro wrestling style headlines um in order to sell itself like we've had six really hardcore dovi versus marquez matchups in the last two years, and they've each been magnificent in their own right. They've all told, they've all added a new chapter to the story. And like, you, that's why I've always said you don't need these big dramatic headlines. You don't need Sky rubbing it down your throat saying, oh, yeah, look, you know, look at how many points Venal has lost this season, or look at what Wilson's driven the money game between them. Dovi and Marquez is proof you don't need that. And, and, Sometimes the racing speaks for itself, and that has been, for me, the best rivalry in all of motorsport for the last two years now, and it's produced the best racing the MotoGP has had in a long, long time. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, as I say, their their styles on track just seem to complement each other so well. Um, with Marquez's just unrivaled corner speed that he can he can carry with that the confidence he has in the front end and the ability to save uh, the unsavable, uh, it seems MotoGP. Uh, and Andrea Vizioso, who is just, he's probably the most difficult rider to pass 
uh, in MotoGP, given yeah. how late he can break into corners. It's very difficult to outbreak the Vizio, so unless you are fully alongside him and possibly even slightly ahead before you hit the brakes for a corner, because Dobby's probably going to break later than you are um, if you're up against him uh, in a battle on track. I said, Dre, that Mark Marquez can say just about everything. There's one thing he can't save, and we saw that in Philip Island, and that's a Tech 3 Yamaha literally riding up the back of him. Um, <laughs> in that, that Philip Island race, he couldn't quite save that one. He had to retire in no. the end. Um, and, and without Mark Marquez in play in that Australian Grand Prix, we we saw a first victory of the season for Maverick Vinales and a first victory of the season for Movistar Yamaha at a point when we thought that they may not win at all um, that season. And we, we have criticised them um, on this show, rightly so, because they've had by their standards a poor season. Um, mm. But I think this was this was a story that I think everyone was kind of happy to see Yamaha and Maverick in particular win again, uh, given what they'd been through. And, and, and I think this race kind of proved in some respects that, yes, we're enjoying this Marcus Tavizioso battle and what a great battle it is, but just how much better would it be next season if we have a competitive Yamaha involved as well? We still haven't seen a proper Marquez versus Vinyard no. for a race victory yet. And it's been two years now of them in the top flight together. Three, if you want to include Suzuki. And the, and the one time it was good, um, Maverick broke everybody at Silverstone two years ago. So, yeah, we've never really had Marquez versus Vinyard scrap for a race win. And, you know, we, 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 were, we were getting that tease at Sepang of Marquez versus Rossi again, and everyone was going, uh-oh, get the popcorn out, here we go. And then Rossi blew it. Ugh, God damn it, Valentino. We were looking forward to that one. But uh, no, in Phillip Island, it was... Um, it, was a, it, it says a lot about the state of the season when Phillip Island isn't an automatic contender for hmm. race of the year. It was, it was the worst the race of that day. Yes, yeah. <laughs> exactly, because the, the Moto2 and Moto3 races were classics. Um, it's, it's a, again, if you have not seen the Moto3 race, go out of your way to see it. It is the nearest a Greyhound race gets to Moto3. Yeah. My, my abiding memory of the season, my abiding image of the season across all three classes is that overhead shot of the start of the final lap of that Moto3 race at Phillip Island King and the 16 bikes all in the space of about, <laughs> you could throw a blanket over them all. Yeah, I thought it looked like a NASCAR plate race at like Daytona or Talladega. I'm like, guys, this is gonna, this is not gonna end well. Somebody's gonna cross the finish line, but a lot of people aren't. Yeah, it, it, you just think, oh my god, this is gonna. End. Luckily, most in one piece, um, and yeah, like that was crazy. That was that like the MotoGP race was the most dude race of the weekend, and probably three or four that were better in terms of overall quality because fit upon is normally a, a slam dunk race of the year candidate not quite on this occasion it was a more of a strategic race where it didn't help where two of its main contenders were out in the early stages again johan zarko just lost it on the breaking tried to swipe across marquez's rear god is great i think i think the only guys that would have had the pace to go with maverick who would ultimately then gap the rest of the field in uh, with the absence of marquez i think marquez would have been one who would have certainly had the pace to go with maverick and Possibly Cal Crutchlow had he raced. Um, yeah. Um, they were the only yeah. two riders I think who would have had the actual pace to, to go with Maverick in a straight fight, and they were both out of play for various reasons. Um, as Jason quite rightly points out, no head-butted seagulls in this one, uh, although we did have a competitive Andre Iannone, um, which, is, which is one uh, similarity people can draw with 2015. And actually, this, this Philip Island race gives us a chance to talk about a few riders or a, a few things that we probably wouldn't have had a chance to talk about normally. And uh, since we have a bit mm. of time, uh, Dre, let's let's sure. touch on them. First of all, Andrea Iannone and Suzuki. I mean, we'll talk about Rins in a moment. Um, but Iannone probably 
was he's, he's probably the other guy that I probably um, should have mentioned but hadn't, who had the pace. He was probably the fastest man of the lot um, across that mm. Philippine weekend, but just kept out breaking himself at the Honda hairpin and um, ultimately ended up finishing second um, that day. But one of the stories of the second half of the season, led by Rins, it has to be said, but you know they did have two podiums too in the second half of the season, was how strong mm. Suzuki were in the second half of the season. If you count, if you go from Mizano onwards um, and track it through to the end of the season, Suzuki were on the podium five times. Um, and Alex Rins had a couple of fourth places to add on to that as well. I mean, yes, Yamaha would also win a race too, but Suzuki would have a genuine claim that in the second half of the season, they were the third fastest team out there. Yeah, like there was a legitimate case that they were better than for, 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 for a good chunk of the season. They were very fast and uh, okay like we've got to be a little bit careful on them because they there was certainly a case where concessions came into play suzuki being able to develop as the year went on with their engines and whatnot definitely helped towards this there's no doubt about that however like ian oni and rins and rins in particular was was fantastic in the second half of the season they found so much pace um, and Rins had finally started to massage out some of the early crashes he had at the start of the season. Ian Oni was still a little bit all over the place, but even he had four podiums of his, of his own right, including his best finish of the year in second in Phillip Island, which, which, which amazingly felt actually a bit disappointing because yeah. Ian Oni was probably the fastest man all weekend in Phillip Island. And he looked like he... Everyone everyone in the paddock had said that Ian Oni was the man to beat that weekend. He looked super fast. He was dominated in the practice sessions, made a mistake in qualifying, so Marquez ended up starting from pole. But Ian Oni was the man to beat in, in, in the race. And he was taking bucket loads of time out of Maverick Vinales at the end of the Grand Prix as well. But he left it too late. And, um, and by the time he got near to Maverick, the race was over. And Ian was actually a little bit disappointed at only finishing second on that one because he clearly, I think, had the pace to win it. Um, as it ended up, like it, it says a lot about the state, the, the state of their season when Suzuki is looking at a second place finish and is looking at like like that was a disappointment, even though their riders were second and fifth in that weekend. They were thinking they were thinking bigger. They were thinking first victory since Maverick at Silverstone a couple of years prior. Didn't quite happen for him, but Rins' consistency in results in the second half of the year was fantastic. Yeah, and as far as Alex Rins is concerned, King, I mean, I know, Dre, you'll probably want to come in on this as well, but as, as, far, as, as far as Rins is concerned, uh, King, in the second half of the season, um, or since the Silverstone cancellation, uh, we mentioned it last week, uh, only Mark Marquez and Andrea Vizioso outscored Alex Rins um, in, in that second part of the season. Um, and Rins was only 17 points shy of being the absolute top scorer um, in the mm. second half of the season behind Mar Marquez. Um, and this, to me, feels like the season Alex Rins truly arrived um, as, as a top-tier MotoGP rider. And, 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 King, when you think of the fact that Juan Mir is joining this team as well, if Suzuki can back this up with a strong bite next year without concessions and hang on to those two riders, what a team they're going to have. Yeah, I'd, I'd be very afraid at Yamaha if things don't improve because Suzuki is coming. Yeah, Dre, I mean, what's, what's your view on that? I mean, Juan Mia has already, spoiler alert, kids, started pretty well in testing. He's already on the pace. Um, in oh, boy. In testing on that second Suzuki, having replaced Andre Iannone. Um, and whilst it's unfortunate for Andre Iannone, you can't really look at any part of this Suzuki team going forward and feel that they've... 
they've made the wrong decision. They've got pretty much every base covered now if they get next year's bike right. It's actually kind of weird how we just forgot that a year ago, Joanne Mir had the greatest lightweight championship seasons we've ever had. A 10-win a ten season where Mir had dominated the championship from start to finish. Everyone in the paddock was like, like, like everyone I could see in the paddock, and David Emmett was speaking to these views on Moto Matters, and the and the consensus was always the same: Mir is going to be spectacular one day. Um, like they all said that Mir had the work ethic and the, the work rate, and just the talent and the nous and the intelligence that he was going to be a superstar one day. And while his Moto2 season wasn't as, as spectacular as others before him that had come through the classes quickly, he's a scintillating talent in his own right. And like you just you can't pass up a talent of his caliber if he, if he's if you've got the chance to sign him. Ian Oni is, for lack of a better term, yesterday's news. Unless you're Keith Ewan looking at his Instagram page, um, unfortunately. But Ian Oni is he's a great rider. When his head is screwed on fully, he is as good as anyone on his day. But he's not going to win you a championship. He's too inconsistent. Um, and he's not going to be the guy that's going to spearhead a factory team for you. We saw it at Ducati. He wasn't quite up to Davizioso's standards. And then we saw it at Suzuki where Rins has come along and has beaten him down this year. I mean, he only had 130 points to Rins 169. He lost by 36 points this year. And it could have very easily been a lot more. It wasn't the fact that Rins had an awful start to the year where he crashed five times in the first eight races. So Rins was comprehensively better than him this season. And again, as I said, when someone like Johan Mir becomes available, you've got to sign someone like that because that is an elite level talent. Um, you're looking at a real A-plus caliber prospect. And, and there's not very many of those these days. And at this point, if you want the ultimate goal, and that is at this point beating Mark Marquez, you need an A-plus caliber talent in order to do it. Suzuki might have two in their garage now with Rins and Noah Mir there. That could be the best team in the sport in two or three years' time when Lorenzo is going to be mid-30s. Um, I mean, we have, a, we have a legitimate season, lest, lest we forget. But uh, that could be... That is the most exciting, best young team on the grid. And it's not even close. Mm. I, I want to talk about next season before we wrap this up, but uh, we'll, we'll mm. get through the, the final two races first. Um, but one final line on Rins, um, as I'm looking through this season's results sheet, only two riders stood on the podium more often than Alex Rins this season, and those were Mark Marquez and Andrea Davizioso. He had five podium finishes this season, which is as many as Valentino Rossi, as many as Maverick Vinales, and one more than Jorge Lorenzo, who only had four podiums, three of which were wins, it has to be said. Um, mm. But that's that's the sort of level of consistency Rins has, has found this year with three seconds and two thirds, um, plus a number of other top six finishes. As I mentioned, he was fourth on two occasions and fifth on two others, um, plus a sixth in Thailand. He found a level of consistency, um, particularly in the second half of this season, which only the best two riders in the world could beat, uh, ultimately. Mm. So, um, so Alex Rins has, uh, has really come of age this year. Um, one other rider quickly, though, Dre, I want to mention from that Philip Island weekend because he's departing MotoGP um, as of this season. He's now heading across to World Superbikes. Alvaro Bautista, um, who yes. ended this year 12th overall in the championship. But I think we're all delighted that he got that moment in factory overalls in Philip Island before he left. And boy, did he take his opportunity. 
He did a, a, an outstanding fourth place. Like I, I, I've joked about this before, but Brother Ryan was in tears when he saw Bautista come over the line in fourth. He's been, I, I'm not exaggerating when I see he's been an Alvaro Bautista fan since 2006. I'm not making this up. His entire life watching bike races, he's been a huge Bautista fan of the Little Devil from the start. And um, after years of basically being one of the real top flight grinders, over 200, and, I think it was something like 256 Grand Prix for Bautista. He's been around the block for over a decade now as a, as a top tier level rider. And I've always felt like Bautista never really got that ultimate opportunity where he could have challenged for a championship. He was at Honda at one point, and that was probably about as close as he got on the satellite Grassini Honda that wasn't quite there. And, you know, of course, going into that bike and knowing that Marquez is on the same one probably isn't going to help. And the opportunity slipped from there, Aprilia, and then obviously Aspar now towards the end of his MotoGP career, but he is a tremendous rider. He's always been, I've said it before, I think he's been the most underrated rider of the last decade or so. Bautista is a quality rider, has been for quite some time. Wasn't sure about the purple hair dye of Valencia, mind you. Um, mm. Went full large, went full large O'Connell on that one, and I'm sure I approve of that. Wouldn't be me. Um, but uh, no, a, a, a truly tremendous talent, and I wish him the very best in World Superbikes next year. Um, but if the fact he went blow for blow with the Vizioso at Phillip Island, first time on the GP18, and he was able to go pound for pound with, again, one of the very, very best riders in the world in Andrea Vizioso is a testament to what a quality rider he has always been. And I think he'll be the what could have been rider of this era. And mm. yeah, I, I look forward to seeing what he can do with a V4 Panigale next year in World Superbikes. Absolutely. Brother Ryan will certainly be uh, tuning into World Superbikes on a regular basis. He uh, will. Next year. Um, Matt Marquez would go on to take victory at the penultimate round of the season, his ninth and final win of the year um, in Japan. Of course, this was the race where we were teased a uh, a rematch of Marquez versus Rossi at Sepang. Um, and the outcome of that race proved that no battle between those two in Malaysia ever ends well um, because Valentino no. Rossi went down from the lead, um, threatening what was looking at them for a large part as if it was going to be back-to-back Yamaha wins, uh, having gone 25 without a win. Um, but he went down at turn one with six laps to go and allowed Mark Marquez through to win ahead of Alex Rins and Joan Zarka, who took uh, a, one last podium for the Tech 3 Yamaha team before, because he moves to KTM. Um, but it's those three letters that are uh, the reason that Ryan King has been looking forward to this he's been particular wait- race. He's been waiting three hours for this. He's been waiting <laughs> for, I could time it since I hit record, one hour, 56 minutes. King has been waiting for us to get to Valencia uh, okay. and discuss Paul Esparga as a result. Um, because it, I, you can tell us in general, King, what you think of their season, first of all, because KTM, in many ways, I think, set the bar perhaps higher than they thought um, in year one by getting so many top 10 finishes and beating a pretty in the championship to the point that perhaps we expected a little too much of them in 2018. Um, but boy, did it come good at the end. Oh, yeah, it was... Yeah, most of 2018, it was a long wait, but that final weekend... It made it worth it all. It did, and what a ride he put together. I mean, he he was challenging outright for second place in the race, in that first part of the race, before crashing. Of course, we had the, the red flag due to the monsoonical rain that was falling in Valencia uh, midway through that race. Paul then remount, take the start for the second part, and finish um, in, in third overall. And this is a rider who has had his own injury problems midway through the season. He injured himself 
um, back at uh, Bruno. Uh, didn't start that race because of a crash uh, in free practice. Uh, or Sorry, didn't start that weekend. Um, didn't start Austria. Didn't then go to Silverstone, but it didn't matter because that race was cancelled anyway. Um, didn't actually have a top 10 finish until that Valencia race, believe it or not. Um, yeah. But his um, his regular point scoring, he finished 11th on no less than five occasions, um, which was, was what saw him way ahead of Bradley Smith in the championship, who uh, did have a couple of top 10 finishes prior to the final round in Valencia, where he finished 8th, but um, just didn't score points as often um, as Paul Spargo over the, the course of the season. But, but King, what about KTM's whole season? Because, I mean, would you agree with me that perhaps that their season as a whole wasn't bad. It just was perhaps that they set the bar so high in 2017 that they were never really going to match it. Yeah, the, the standards were so high based on 2017 that kind of... It was a letdown during the first half when it was like 11th, 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 11th. Even though when you step back, look at things, like that's actually pretty impressive for you know a factory team that is this new to the championship. Yeah, and they still beat Aprilia in the end in the championship in the battle for fifth and sixth, and um, and they weren't helped either by the fact that their test rider Mika Calio injured himself um, at the Saxon Ring, badly injured his knee, and hasn't ridden a motorbike since. Um, and ultimately, KTM were without a test rider um, for for the bulk of the season. They got Randy Depunier to come in and do a lot of the uh, of the test riding for them. Um, but Mark Marquez, like many riders, Dre would crash out of that final race in Valencia because the conditions were so horrible. Um, mm. And Andrea De Vizioso came through to win the final race of the season ahead of Alex Rins, who again would finish second, is is second second place finish in a row, and he led by a mile in that first half of the race before the conditions really yeah. started to deteriorate, and the rest of the field pulled him back in. Um, but if Mark Marquez is going to win the war ultimately and take the championship, it was kind of nice, wasn't it? We said this last week. It was kind of nice and kind of fitting that the season would uh, wind down with one last De Vizioso victory. Well, the year started out with a De Vizioso wins. I the year closed with a Vizio as well. Um, nice reminder that he truly is the second best bike rider on the planet now. And yeah, I completely agree. Um, it was it was perfectly balanced as all things should be as campus and disco. I think that's quite perfect as a, as a way to sum it up. Um, it was a fantastic year. Um, he did a really really good job. And that's just brother Ryan hugs me. So, yes, yeah. we're talking about your boy Bautista. Yeah, we're very excited for him next year. Ow. Um, <laughs> but, uh, he slaps my back really hard. But uh, yes, um, okay, it, it was a per- shoulder. <laughs> no, it's not, it's not dislocated. I think it's still in one piece. Uh, like, I'll, I'll have to have Keith Ewan check it on commentary because he's a medical expert these days. Um, no, but uh, uh, a fantastic performance from Davizioso again and um, a, a perfect way to close out the year. Um, you know, the, the two most dominant guys in the championship who won 13 out of the 18 races we did get in the end, that's uh, the yin and the yang that uh, Dovi would end and start the year with victories. Absolutely. Mark Marquez, ultimately, the champion with nine wins. 321 points for him. Uh, he won the championship by 76 points from Andrea Vizioso in second, who finished uh, in the end 47 points clear of Valentino Rossi in third, who took the bronze medal. Maverick Vinales fourth on 193. Alex Rins climbing to fifth with that brilliant second half of the year. Um, to outscore Joan Zarco and Cal Crutchlow. Zarco beating Crutchlow for the top independent honour by 10 points. Danilo Petrucci, who finished second uh, in uh, the French Grand Prix and then fourth, his next best result at the Saxon Ring, 
um, but would not finish any higher than that. He wouldn't finish in the top six uh, post-Silverstone uh, as his season kind of wound down in disappointing fashion. Jorge Lorenzo, of course, wouldn't score points um, from uh, Austria onwards until he was 12th in Valencia. He ended the year ninth overall, ahead of Andrea Inoni in 10th. Danny Pedrosa, whose MotoGP season comes, uh, his career comes to an end in 11th. We wish him well in his retirement and what is going to be two years of testing with King's squad at KTM. He's going to be KTM's secret weapon for the next two years. Um, he ended this year 11th. Bautista, 12th. Jack Miller, um, slightly disappointed, I suppose, in the end with 13th overall, ahead of Paul Espargaro, who leapt all the way up to 14th with that final round podium. Franco Mobidelli wins the Rookie of the Year in 15th, beating Hafish Sirin by four points, and... Uh, his general showing on and off the track on uh, Sunday at Sepang will be another of the abiding memories of the season, as he did a nation proud. Uh, Alicia Spargro, a pretty as leading runner in 17th, ahead of Bradley Smith in 18th. He also bounced out of MotoGP full-time, at least. He'll be wildcarding with Aprilia next season, as well as his Moto E campaign. Tito Rabat, who, of course, didn't ride in a race post-Silverstone, um, but we wish him well on his return from injury. He's been back testing. He ended the year 19th. Ahead of Takaki Nakagami, Scott Redding, Michele Piro, who leapt up to 22nd with a fourth in the final round at Valencia. Carol Abraham, 23rd. Stefan Bradl, who subbed for Cal Crutchlow in the final two rounds, 24th. Mika Kallio, 25th. Katsuki Nakasuga rode once in uh, Mategi and scored points to classify himself 26th. Xavier Simeon scored one point. That came up for the Island. He's 27th. And Jordi Torres, the Spanish Elvis, uh, who yes. was the substitute for uh, Tito Rabat, scored a point at the final round to classify himself 28th. Five riders raced or entered a race weekend but failed to score. Uh, the one who deserves our utmost sympathy is Thomas Luty, who rode uh, in every race weekend but was the only regular rider not to score. Uh, oh. He ends the year 29th overall. Mike Jones, who raced in uh, Australia as a substitute for Bautista, who went up to the factory squad. Sylvain Gintoli, who wildcarded three times for Suzuki. Christophe Ponson, who was the much maligned uh, replacement at the Avintia Ducati team at Mizano. And Loris Bass, who, the poor guy, entered one race weekend, but unfortunately for him, it was the race weekend that didn't get a race at Silverstone. <laughs> um, so poor Loris Bass, he ends unclassified with no points. Um We've crossed the two-hour mark. We're at two hours, three minutes. But I do quickly want to do a bit of rapid fire and go through some of the things that are changing for next season uh, before we wrap up this uh, this 2018 season review because there is so much to look forward to um, in the 2019 season. So I'm going to go one by one to you both and to uh, to throw some subjects at you and you can uh, tell me what you think about it for next season, how you think it may well go. All so, Dre, I'll start with you, um, and we'll we'll go through the rookies first. So, Dre, I'll start with you first. Uh, Fabio Quartararo. Ooh. Um, he's going to have a hard start given the 20... ...like the end of the problems um, that's been well documented over the course of this season. But uh, I am curious to see how he gets on. He's a very exciting talent, and I think... The bigger the bike, the better it will suit a guy that is so blatantly going to be about six foot six by the time he finishes actually growing um, in the end. But um, I think he's going to have a hard time over there. He might be towards the bottom of that rookie of the year list um, coming through. But uh, this first year is going to be a development year for him. If Yamaha gets better and finds himself, he'll inevitably get stronger too. He seems like he's going to have a good package around him. So let's see how he gets on. Uh, and King, uh, Joan Mir. Ooh, it is. Mm, I Mir, I'd say, gonna be a spectacular talent. Probably his ceiling's gonna be based on how good his bike is. Mm, uh, yeah, I look forward to seeing uh, how he gets on. Um, 
Dre, we've kind of spoken a bit about him already today, but the Moto2 champion, Francesco Bagnaia. Um, spectacular talent. Um, could be, like looks like a legitimate A plus. He's like he could be the guy Ducati build themselves around for the next decade. He looks spectacular. Only tenths behind the established Ducati runners of Miller and and um, who's not going to be on a GP19 this year and and Davizioso um and petrucci that are all up there um banyaya i mean petrucci looks like a stopgap only because of how spectacular banyaya looks as a talent he is going to be one to watch this year i'll be stunned if he doesn't win rookie of the year um he he could be the one to watch for the next two or three years and uh and king i've deliberately saved this uh the final rookie for you since he's on a kto miguel Oliveira. <laughs> mm. oh i'm Going to be so biased with this pick. Championship but... contender. <laughs> <laughs> but oh god, Oliveira, I would probably say it's gonna be uh how well that tech three kind of adapts to running KTMs next season. I think Oliveira's probably gonna take a little bit of time to get into place himself, but I think once all the pieces you know, kind of gel together. I could see them consistently finishing in the top 10. Mm, because it, it, it's, I've noticed this with Oliveira, Dre, that when, when Oliveira goes into a class, he seems to take a year to, to sort of get the hang mm. of it. And then once he gets the hang of it, he's, he's spectacular. Um, and uh, I think that'll be the case with him as well. Um, but yeah, the uh, as King rightly says, the, the big question with that team will be how Tech 3 adjusts to KTMs. And the early signs are not well. Um <laughs> based on testing, but we shall see. There's a long way to go before the 2019 season starts. That's the rookies, but a lot of riders are changing teams um, and going to new teams. So um, we'll uh, we'll discuss how we think they're going to do. Um, first of all, Dre, uh, Franco Morbidelli at Petronas Yamaha. Um, he's going to have probably more resources to succeed than anyone. He's going to get a, apparently a, a basically a package very similar to what Maverick not to mention the mentorship of Valentino himself, who's already been apparently putting whispers in his ear um, about um, you know the the Yamaha, how it handles, how it how it goes, and more. But then he said it himself. Um, it was exactly like Valentino Rossi told him. So, if with Rossi's mentorship and and um, a very well backed, you know, very well funded Petronas team behind him. There is no reason why he can't, you know, maybe even be top 10 in the championship this year. He has, um, you know, he has a lot of potential and a lot of people backing him. He is the star graduate of the VR46 Academy so far. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, I, I'm excited to see what he can get up to. I hope to God Yamaha is better than they were last year. Mm. Uh, I was going to include Yanone uh, Aprilia in this, but I think you just basically roll out the dumpster fire gif and that will cover it. Oh, um, yes. So, um, so, so, King, I'll come to you next, and you know what I'm going to say. Zarko yep. at KTM. Zarko at KTM. Oh, dear. Uh, let's go fair and balanced reviews here kids god i i i want them to do well uh first of all do you think he's an upgrade on what they had this year with paul and bradley smith oh i'd say it's definitely an upgrade on bradley smith i think i'm more fearful of the 2019 ktm bike because i the developments they try later on in the season it wasn't looking too well and i think that my expectations are a bit lowered next year. Like, if they can be as good as the first half of this season was, I'd be fine with that. 
Mm. Yeah, we, we shall see. It's going to be a, a building year um, for KTM. Cam's just posted that very gif in the chat right on cue. Um, <laughs> yeah, for those that are listening live on Discord, that is probably what Andrea Noni on Aprilia is going to look like. Something like that. Yeah, prob- probably um, on fire. Yeah. But, uh, two more that we want to talk about, though. And, um, Dre, I'll come to you next. And uh, I think for the last one, I think I'll give you both a say because it is the big one. But, Dre, I'll come to you first of all on this one. Danilo Petrucci at the Factory Ducati team. Um, no reason why he can't win a race or two, especially if it rains. Him on a factory Ducati, a GP19 in the wet. He, uh, you might as well pencil him in for at least one win if that happens. Um, so, uh, yeah, Petrucci is, is very quick. He's going to be an, a very, I think he's going to be a worthy adverse, adversary for Davizioso. Um, the, the, his problem is going to be, is this just going to be a one-off deal to, to bridge, um, Frank? Francisco Bagnaia's inevitable rise to glory, or is he actually going to get in Dovi's grill and actually challenge him for, for you know, the number two honours, shall mm. we say? Because it, it depends. Are you going to be thinking tight for, or are they, um, are they going to put all the eggs in the Dovi? Because well, that's, that, that's the thing. I, I think they are. Mm. I think, I mean, it's, this this could be brilliant if he does it next year, but I think Petrucci could be the rider that wins Dovizioso the twenty not twenty nineteen championship because he's gonna be mm. he's gonna be quick enough to score good points, but I don't think he's gonna be quick enough to take race wins off Dovizioso ultimately. Um, whereas True. the rider we're gonna discuss next might well take points off his new teammate. And, and Dre, I'll let you come in after King on this one because I don't think I can stop you from having a view on this one because this is the big story rider wise going into twenty nineteen. So King, <laughs> you can have first go. Jorge Lorenzo at Repsol Honda. Oh, Ooh, it is the dream team concept personified. As in most motor racing dream teams, it looks fantastic on paper, but there are going to be fireworks <laughs> on track in oh, the yeah. garage. Fireworks everywhere. Dre, what, Dre, what do you reckon? I mean, he, he has started in this Heretics this week. He's been pretty close to Mark Marquez on outright lap times, but uh, ultimately... How do you think he'll go, and how do you think the Marquez Lorenzo dynamic will will endure the season? Oh, I, they seem to be respecting each other at the moment, but that is a very very if at the moment rather than when we have not seen these guys on a racetrack properly in in full racing conditions yet. And oh, I'm not sh- again. I still say from I'm I'm still not sure we made the right move by bringing Lorenzo. I mean, I totally get the dream team appeal of it. I totally get. That. However, on the other side of the coin, Lorenzo is such a dynamically different rider than Mark Marquez, and and the Honda is a, is such a specialized machine at this point. I don't see what you gain in running Lorenzo on the second bike. Um, he's Lorenzo is a bit of an egomaniac. He's a bit of a diva. He's gonna want things going his way. And if that doesn't happen with Marquez up front, if Marquez is 20, 30 points clear later on in the season, I think we're going to see Lorenzo start to kick up a stick. And I don't think anybody in that Repsol Honda team wants that. He's not a Danny Pedrosa. Um, Lorenzo has always been Mr. Bet against yourself. And I'm not sure how that's going to affect the Honda dynamic going forward because Marquez has never had someone like him as a teammate. That's what also makes it really interesting. Yeah, it's going to be absolutely, you're not going to want to take your eyes off it. And uh, I think this last 10 minutes of this podcast, as we review the 2018 season, has, has whetted the appetite nicely for 2019. I think we all cannot wait for the 2019 MotoGP season. There is so much to look forward to next year. Across all classes, it has to be said. And of course, next year, there will be four of them, um, at least on six mm-hmm. weekends of the year. We'll have uh, MotoGP, of course. We'll have the brand new Triumph-powered Moto2 class. 
um, with so many rookies moving up out of uh, Moto3, including the champion Jorge Martin, Marco Bezzecchi, and Ea Bastianini, um, and more Fabio Di Gian Antonio moving up as well to join the KTM squad led by Lord Binder, who will be no doubt rankings pick for the title next year. Um, yeah, there, are, there are so many others to look forward to in that class. Moto3, which is perhaps as wide open as it's ever been, uh, with the undefeated, as we attended him last week, Chan on Chu, um, moving into the class <laughs> next season. He's uh, one for one in his Moto3 career, but there are so many riders who will be looking to step into the shoes of Jorge Martin next season. Aaron Canet, Lorenzo Della Porta. Uh, once again, we'll have the junior world champion, Ralph Fernandez, moving up. Can he succeed? Um, where the likes of Dennis Foggia and others have by uh, moving into the uh, Premier Class and, uh, and getting on the podium. Moto E, of course, debuts next year with Bradley Smith, um, likely to be among the championship favourites, but also, as uh, Dre will be keen to point out, Seti Gibbonau will be on the grid for that. Um, so Moto E's inaugural <laughs> season will be well worth watching. It's going to be another brilliant season um, across MotoGP's classes in 2019, and we look forward to bringing it all to you um, as we go on Bike Live. Uh, next year, um, Bike Life will continue uh, through the winter break. It will likely be, um, and this isn't setting stone, but it will likely be fortnightly at the best um, as we go through the winter. Because, uh, as I'm sure you can appreciate, there ain't an awful lot of motorcycle racing to talk about for the next uh, three months or so. Um, Sorry. But we'll be back in uh, in a couple of weeks for the Bike Live Awards um, as we uh, as we round up everything across all classes, and that's uh, MotoGP 2-3, World Superbike, Supersport, BSB, and a lot. Um, in the Bike Live Awards as we uh, we crown the best and worst of motorcycle racing in 2018. Before then, though, um, Motorsport 101 continues next week with episode 172. Um, Dre, I don't think you're on this one, are you? Um, so um, I'm not. So I, I might as well throw to King for this one. King, episode 172 <laughs> of Motorsport 101 next week. Sell, 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 sell. Next week we have... It's mainly going to be focused on a Formula E season preview. You might be thinking, hey, it's like an extra week out. Well, due to scheduling, uh, that's the only place we'd be able to fit it. (laughs) Yeah, the uh, Formula E season which starts... Best laid plans and all that. Yeah, (laughs) uh, where all good championships start, and that's... uh... That's not actually no. I'm reading my notes. It's actually starting in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, isn't it? Um, so, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, the uh, the uh, 2018-19 uh, Formula E season, of course, the first season of Gen Two uh, of Formula E, uh, will be previewed next week on Motorsport 101 um, before our Formula One season preview, which will follow uh, the week after that for episode 173. So, a lot to look forward to here on Motorsport 101. Uh, in the coming weeks, even though we are heading into December, still plenty to look forward to across our two shows. Um, but my thanks uh, to Ryan King for joining me this week, and my thanks to Andre Harrison, as always, um, as we bring the curtain down on the 2018 MotoGP season. It's a season that's seen us say farewell to MotoGP for some of the sports stalwarts. Uh, Bradley Smith and Scott Redding, of course. Alvaro Bautista, of course, heads to World Superbikes, and Danny Pedrosa, who bids sayonara to the MotoGP paddock uh, in a racing capacity, at least. Um, it's a season that has seen Valentino Rossi entertain once again, even if he didn't win. Uh, as Yamaha begin their rebuilding, we've seen Alex Rins come of age. We've seen Joan Zarco um, light up the circuits again, once again, on that independent Yamaha. Cal Crutchlow showed that he is still winning a material once again in MotoGP. Um, but ultimately, two rows above the rest. And as uh, Jorge Lorenzo um, showed that he could at least win on a Ducati, Andrea De Vizioso proved that he was the best in red, but ultimately Mark Marquez was the very best in the world. That was the 2018 MotoGP season. 
and we look forward to doing it all again in 2019 from the three of us it's goodbye